Welcome, everyone, to episode eight of the Roots to Suits podcast. As always, I'm joined by my brother, Graydon Wellborn. And today, we have somebody who requires absolutely no introduction. We are joined by the Kevin Jodry. Kev, thanks so much for taking the time, bro. My pleasure. Appreciate Kevin, it. Nice, nice to have you, Kevin. Oh, no, it's awesome to be here. And, it, and it's uh, it's our first time on the, on the mic, too, so it'll be fun. <laughs> Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. No, first, first, first time meeting my brother. I mean, that's pretty cool. I want to, uh, I want to dive into a ton of stuff that you're doing today. Some awesome work with the Ganjier programs and 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 things that you've got going on internationally. But before we dive into all that, I want to take it back and learn a little bit about um, you and, and and your your humble beginnings. And I know you know life started for you in Rhode Island. Can you talk a little bit about just high level where you're from and and what growing up was like for you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm from I'm from uh, Rhode Island originally, from a, a neighborhood called Oakland Beach. Uh, my um, my background was I was I was uh, raised in a in a, a crime zone, and my family was involved in organized crime, so I had a kind of unique background in terms of exposure as a young child, and my my mother was a, a brilliant scientist, and so I I had. Uh, natural curiosity and my mom uh, was really about you know digging into things and my father was a side of a criminally was a, a fantastic craftsman so you know you kind of pick up a, a dual skill set and the the world at that time was different you know you're talking 70s new england early 80s new england and it just had a, a profound impact on how i saw the world and I ended up, uh, I leave New England, I go in the military, and I, uh, you know, go forward from there. But that that 18 years I spent in Rhode Island. Wait, Kev, Kev, why did you join the military, may I ask? Oh, yeah. What made you do that? I joined the military because oh, I, I, got, I got busted in 83 for uh, cultivation and, uh, tr and trafficking. And I, I was incarcerated, so I spent 11th grade in incarcerated. Wow. And when I get out of training school, I go back to high school. And I just started really seeing what was about to take place because all my friends were about to start to really do real prison time and in, in a lot of it. And so my cousin at that time was doing a 200-year sentence. And so I went and visited him in prison. And we talked about, you know, opportunities. And I was just like, you know, like, fuck, man. I, I don't really don't know what to do. And he was like, you know, he goes, the best thing you could do is just take off out of the area for a while and just get out of New England. And it was it was just some of the best advice ever, because really a good portion of my friends went down. A whole bunch of my partners got murdered or killed somebody and did life like, you know, the the crew imploded. And it was that turbulence of the 80s and the drug war kicks in 83 heavily. And then by 85, cocaine is just fucking flooding the, the whole East Coast. And it was just the beginning of the end, really. So for me to be able to get out of the area was crucial. And the military gave me a, an, an opportunity to, in my mind, I was going to go into um, working on oil rigs. I thought that if I, I could get into an oil rig industry, then what it would do is it would give me the adventure I needed so I wasn't bored. And it would give me uh, excellent money so that it would you know be lucrative for the for the risk. And I had grown up on the ocean. I was already a diver, like, you know, so the whole idea of, 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 you know, working on the ocean was something that wasn't foreign. And 
the military gave me the opportunity to do that because I didn't have the ability to to go to any kind of schooling. And so the service service gave me a route out of Rhode Island in a way that I didn't expect. And then, you know, what it what it does is it it propels me, you know, all the way into California eventually. So I go into the military. I'm I'm working on Hawaii for a couple of years doing international work either salvage or um, we're doing uh, shipping lane mapping or I'm mapping coral reefs or we're doing uh, uh, drug seizure shit, you know, military shit. And I get to Northern California and NorCal just kind of spoke to me, man. I, I really, really liked, I moved to San Francisco in 87. And so San Francisco in 1987 was just an incredible city to go into. And you know, and it's funny too because you know you talk about time, right? I, I'm in the cab coming home from the airport, and I've said this before, and I always I always bring it up as a as a as a point of like, I was watching a bunch of cops beat some dudes up on the corner in San Francisco, and I said to the cab driver, I "said What's that about?" He goes, "Oh, they just beating up the gays," and it was that's, that's 1987, right? And so 85 in Hawaii, they're outing people. If you're gay, they're outing you on the news destroying your life 87 they're still beating you with sticks and so to me from new england where you didn't have um i would say the 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 world is more repressed in new england everybody's keeping their personal shit their personal shit but california was far more open but to see that i always use that as a point of reference where i'm like your beliefs weren't in line with the government and they beat you with nightsticks <laughs> That's 1987. It, it wasn't like it was 1957. So the the world was a little different, but the Bay Area was so diverse and it was just filled with so much opportunity. And so while I was there, I I just really fell in love with Northern California. And I I ended up coming up to Humboldt County in 92 to uh, do a lighthouse. I was doing a lighthouse. After I got out of the service, the military hired me to rebuild lighthouses. And so I get out of the service and I go back to work in the military, but as a civilian running military people. And so, and then I was fully, I was fully engaged in trafficking at that moment too, right? So like I, the minute I got out of the military, I went right back in the game. I mean, I'm talking the day I got out, but the, 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 working on the lighthouses was just awesome. It was, you you know, you're touching a, a piece of history that's unique and it's, it's just something to touch old things and then try to like restore and preserve and protect and further. And, and I was, I like really liked what I did and I come up to Humboldt County and I'm here. And then, um, I, I finish up the job and my younger brother, who was like 12 at the time, who uh, was about to become a, a fucking wild man? He was he was going to do a stretch in the training school, and the Rhode Island said, "Hey, if you take custody of him and get him out of the state, uh, you know, we we'll, we can avoid the incarceration time." And so I had him come live with me. So fuck, I was 25, and I had my 12 year old brother come live with me, and I'm down in the bay. And I realized that it was that's wild, by the way. Jesus Christ, man! Let me fucking. <laughs> you probably couldn't even take care of yourself. Now you got to take care of a twelve-year-old. Oh no, kid. I can take care of myself. Good, Graydon. I, I'm somebody <laughs> who can take care of myself since I was a little kid. Like that's something I've always done. I I I had a different background, and I my ability to 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 take care. It, my, my my abilities were pretty fucking developed by the time I was young. 
And so taking care of myself wasn't an issue. Maybe taking care of myself in a way that was like, you know, emotionally healthy because, you know, you're, you're, you come out of a, a fucking shotgun blast and there's pieces of you all over the place. You're trying to put them back together again. But uh, trying to help my brother out and, you know, be good family member, it was uh, it didn't seem like a reach at the time because, you know, he was my little brother. And so we uh, move up to Humboldt County because at the time I was living in Oakland and Oakland was the murder capital of the United States at that moment. Right. So but the three three years from like, I would say, you know, 89, 90, 91, 92, there was uh, there was this cat named Felix Mitchell. Right. And Felix was the crime lord that ruled the Bay Area. Like, I mean, they, they, they have to do a movie about this guy at some point because he ruled the fucking Bay. Just like when you're watching King of New York and he's like, if there's a nickel bag moved in the Bronx, I want in. Felix Mitchell was in. There wasn't a single area in the Bay that he didn't have his arm up to the elbow in that shit. And he ruled the dope game. Ruled it. And so he gets in trouble and he goes to the joint and... He he fucking makes a crucial mistake and he disrespected some Mexican brother over like a $20 bet and the guy fucking stabbed him to death right on the spot, right? Didn't give a fuck that he was a crime lord and didn't care about the repercussions that were going to happen next because what it did is it launched the most violent drug war that you can imagine and it was who was going to take over the territories and so Felix's nephew, uh, uh, Little D, and his boy Blackie, they go to take on and they 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 bring his force forward. And what it did is it created a a wave of violence that you had to see to believe. And so, like for me, I was living off in the Fruitvale MacArthur area, right? Which at the time was looking so violent, but I had a cool little spot up in the corner. So I, I was all right. But on the way, on the way to the gym or cruising through the neighborhood, it wasn't uncommon to see dudes jumping up off the back of the rigs with guns and blasting people on the street. Like the the amount of of weapon violence that was going on was unreal because they were fighting over who was gonna run the territory, and my brother was um, physically precocious, where he was just naturally more physical than the ordinary person, and and he had a, a fucking wild streak in him that was a mile wide. And Your so brother I, was an arm wrestling world champion, was he not? Yeah, he was well. He yeah, he was he was amateur world champion. He, and and when he when he competed for the United States, so my brother represented the U.S. as a professional arm wrestler, and he came in eleventh and thirteenth. So like in the Olympics. Well, the Olympics. There's no Olympic sport, but in in terms of like uh, I guess like, yeah, USA yeah. kind of shit. Yeah. And okay. So, so he represents the United States and and uh, pulls an eleventh and a thirteenth. So eleventh left and thirteenth right. So he's ambidextrous, but he was he was uh, amateur world champ. My brother won every competition you can think of, but he was a fan, and he, he's he's just a naturally gifted athlete. But he's driven, driven to train, and so when you're that physical and you're that wild, and and at the time too, you know, you're that white. Oakland, I like like Oakland was a different place, and I I was embraced by Oakland. I I moved there, and it was like. I don't think I've ever got treated so well. So for whatever reason, the 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 black population, the Mexican population, Oakland, California, uh, accepted me into that world. Why, why do you think that is? I think a lot of it is for most people that aren't from 
I would say, you know, rough background. They, they don't understand some of the basic premises of, of uh, communication and respect. And so the, the idea of entitlement is real to me. And people begin to believe they're more special. Like, I'm, I'm glad your mama and daddy had more money and that you were born into a good house. But that doesn't really mean shit. It just means you're lucky. And so what you find is that I don't have to atone for any of my sins as much as I just have to be a decent person. And so for me, my, my attitude with people has always been, if you're cool, I'm cool. And so what it does, it allows you to make interesting relationships. And I think for the first time, you had a, it, it, it was mind bending to the black people that I met that they had a white person they were hanging out with. It, it was it was like the first time they were hanging out with the white person in a way that was comfortable for them in the same way it was comfortable with me. And so what it did is it it allowed there to be this really interesting union. And because my background was East Coast, it was fascinating to people on the West Coast because it 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 was so different and so real. And for me, the the West Coast is where I lived and I loved it. And I just uh I just see people as people because I spent all those years as a kid around so many criminals that I don't really look at you as a criminal. I just look at you as a person. And so what it does, it allows you to have these genuine relationships that most people can't have. And for me, the, 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 the black and the Mexican population of the Bay area just said, fuck Kev, you welcome to come hang out with us. And I dove into that shit till I hit the fucking bottom. Like, I mean, I went native and I was just blessed to have that experience because what it did is it let me really, really dive into different cultures and get to see them from their perspective, you know? And so like when you're from New England, you know, someone was trying to explain to me white entitlement and I laughed and I said, we fucking invented white entitlement. What are you talking about? We're the ones that invented it. We're like 90 fucking 5% white in New England, right? We, we, we own that shit. We were so fucking mean and shitty we made everybody else move across the United States that the Western expansion was because the New Englanders were a bunch of pricks. <laughs> and so, and it's That's really real. funny. It's all, it's all, yeah, no, no. The, the fucking New Englanders are fucking around. And my family been there for hundreds of years. We had the same fucking house we lived in for 300 years. So, you know, old New England. And it just lets you understand that as 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 what it is and they, and there's two new englands there's the new england that the that was that i was from and then there's the upper class new england that i wasn't from and i got exposed to the upper class end of it because when i was young i had uh i was having scholastic troubles as a kid and so uh they 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 thought i was retarded so they they had me looked at you know and what was really happening was that i i was uh gifted in a way that made it so school was boring so that everything that we were doing I don't like I was doing it in my head as we were doing it so I was never like present in the space at the time because I was already 10 pages ahead and it 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 was causing some real fucking problems and no one knew how to deal with that kind of shit at the time and uh it just wasn't a it wasn't a positive time, put it that way. And so once they found out, you know, that they were like, oh, you're fucking gifted. 
So you go from you go from retarded, which is they treat you like you're stupid, to being in the next day you're fucking gifted and they treat you like you're a failure because you're you're not doing something special and you're only six, right? And so you're laughing. But I said this to someone the other day that, that what you realize is that when you're fucking smart, you're smart, right? And so you just pick shit up. And what you know is that when you're six and everyone in the room is afraid of you, you're fucking pretty clear about it. And what you realize is that it's their own failures. And it starts to help you understand the world around you pretty well, that you're always um, victimized by others' ideas and their perceptions and their values. And, and everyone always wants to let you know what they would do if they were you. If they had been you, how much better they would have played the game. If they had been born with your mind, what they'd be doing with it, you know? And you're always laughing because you're like, you're, you're too fucking stupid to understand. You still wouldn't do anything with it. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's real. And so what happened was uh, I ended up going to an extremely exclusive private school and it was with some of the wealthiest, richest people in fucking New England. And the problem was I didn't fit in. And I didn't fit in. And a lot of it was because the parents knew my background. And so I would hear the comments from the kids. And I would instantly know that they had no idea where I was from. So how the fuck would they have these comments? And then the problem was I was you know, raised in the neighborhood. And so... And I was just a skinny little kid, but if you were going to talk shit to me and fuck around, I was going to smack you in the fucking teeth. And so, because that's how the neighborhood was. If you didn't back your shit up, man, you got rolled over like a fucking truck. So you, you learn to be aggressive to protect yourself. And so that didn't work well. And because my background wasn't financially elite and it was funny because we weren't poor my old man was successful but there's a there's differences between being successful and living in a fucking castle on blackstone boulevard there's 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 wealth and then there's rich and wealth is generational wealth is where the economy goes up and down and you don't know a fucking difference rich is you you're 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 moving with the flow and when i got to be exposed to wealth I didn't like it as much as one would think because so much of it was true entitlement where you're taught from childhood that you're superior and that that others have to be inferior in order for you to be superior. And I just didn't like it. I didn't like the the, the classism. To me it was just it, it 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 was it just wasn't real. And it let me, it, and it kind of affected me really over the course of my life because I ended up spending the majority of my life really looking to be with people that I liked as people, not necessarily for financial gain. And so you end up, you know, uh, separating yourself from certain realms in the world because to me, so much of that wasn't real. The, the, the people that I'm dealing with at my age, their attitudes and visions and views are shaped from their parents. And to me, you know, you're living in a fucking bubble. And so it makes it tough. And, and, and if you're sharp, you, you, you're always, well, money always finds you when you have a fucking brain, right? That money, money, money is pretty good at seeing it. And so your access is incredible. But the problem is once we all sit down and we have a conversation and I realize really you want to step on people fucking as a habit, it's just not my thing. 
And so my my background didn't allow me to make that transition. And as I grew older, I just didn't want to make the transition. I really never wanted to join the elite group because to me, elite was something you earned, you gained, you did. It wasn't something that you're born into. You're born into uh, uh, success. I think that that's an incredible gift and it's our dream. It's our dream to do it for our own children. But to me, it's it's what you did yourself. Who are you by yourself? If I take you out of your position, what do you like? Can you function without your support system? And so to me, you know, that was like the most important thing. And because I had struggled so much as a kid, trying to take care of myself and just fucking survive, I had a radically different view of people. And, and what I knew was that I, I didn't see people as less if they didn't have. And so if you were poor, I didn't judge you on that. I just, I looked for the, I look, I still do. I still try to look for the little pieces in the person that let me find respect for you as a human. And then that's what we base our relationship on. Because if I'm basing it off of your loot or I'm basing it off of your access, well, that that's that's variable. It moves. But your character pretty much stays true. And so that that exposure, you know, to, at that time period, it gave me a great education and it let me see some incredible stuff. But it also let me realize that most of the shit you see in the world isn't what you think it is. Most people that are successful, the vast majority, it's, it's generational. Yeah. There's so, a... There's an inherent way to approach any human being that some, people, that some people inherently know how to do and some people don't. And it's micro expressions and it's eye contact and it's this symphony of all these things. And if you know how to do it, you know, and, and, and you move correctly and, you, you know, you've, you've seen some things, I think that you can sit at a lot more tables than most. And, and, and it's clear that you got access where many didn't. Oh, guaranteed. I got, I got, I, you know, and it's worked for me on my whole life. It's allowed me to be able to make some friendships that were profound in their impact to me, because what you meet is you meet people that are genuinely about you in the same way you about them. So let me ask you this, Kev, you, you, you established yourself in the Bay. Uh, You very connected in a number of communities. Were you leveraging those connections in a way that was, was leveraging those connections part of prompting your move north or was that completely separate uh the the move north completely separate from you know trying to you know okay well i've got a i've got a bunch of people here let's go north and get no. the source i didn't want to leave I, I didn't really want to leave the bay i mean i love being up in humboldt county and stuff but i had a good life in the bay and you know me and oakland had this this really good relationship right so oakland was good to me and my crew in oakland was solid and so I, I was going to have to like build a new life up north. It wasn't, it was really just to get my brother out of the bay so that I'd have my little oh, brother wow. county okay. so that he'd be able to go to school and I wouldn't have to worry about him going to Oakland Tech down the street. And in wow. Oakland Tech, in the 80s, Oakland Tech has got, you know, four or 5,000 kids and there's got to be, you know, fucking 700 Mercedes out in front of the school from the Coke game, right? <laughs> We're talking Oakland Tech was live. And, you know, you, you got you got metal detectors then, you know, scrubbing guns. So when you're scrubbing guns in the fucking mid-80s, yeah. <laughs> you have a problem. Serious, yeah. And so what I knew is my brother was a fucking tiger. And so my, my brother's not the kind of dude to lay down on any kind of pressure. 
And so what I knew was that it shit was not going to go well because you're, you're young. And so, you know, youth is where people push the limits. And so I went up to Humboldt County. And the funny thing is, is that it, it really wasn't even at that time though, like Humboldt, Humboldt was moving her, but like most white people in Wait, Humboldt. Kev, can I interrupt you quick? Yeah. So were you, you were just so I understand you were trying to get to Humboldt County to basically live like a quieter life then. Yeah, for my brother. Yeah, I just for your brother, yeah. A lot. Yeah. See, when I got okay. to Humboldt, right, I was dating this chick in the Bay, and she was a straight gangster. She was, um, uh, oh, fucking straight gangster. Brenda had six IDs. Like, I'm telling you, this chick wasn't fucking around, man. She was savage. There's, there's, there's an episode just on Brenda, right? Like, this oh, holy shit. <laughs> So we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do I it. just want to hear that story so bad. It was out of fucking control, but she also had- I love that her name's Brenda. Yes. Family. She had family up in Humboldt County. And so when I rolled up to Humboldt, her family met me and my boy Azel. And they they took us around and introduced us and let us check out all the cool spots. And we maintain those relationships to this day. So the connects I made when I got here, that first night I got here, which is really 30 years ago, a couple of weeks back, um, I maintained those relationships all these years. And so as soon as we got here, we got tied in and got hooked up. And, and then I get lucky and I meet a local up in Southern Humboldt and his family's connected like crazy. And so me and him tie in and all of a sudden I tie into his whole crew. And so I'm just swimming in, in Humboldt County shit. But all of my connects in the Bay were, were black and Mexican, right? And that scared the living shit out of the white people in Humboldt County. Fucking scared the shit out of them for years. It took years for that to normalize. And it was like in the 2000s that I was able to start really bringing people from Humboldt down into the Bay and introducing them to all my guys. Because the, the racial shit, it's... Were you going back and forth between um, Oakland and Humboldt? Yeah, just a lot. I wasn't. I had. I stopped as soon as my brother came out. I I had to stop the job because I couldn't travel, and so I just went into full time um, uh, distributing herb again. Right, so I just went back into shipping dope across the country, and so what it would do is, all I'd have to do is just go down to the bay and work for like three days a month. So I would go down to the bay. I'd hook up with my Mexican crew. We'd get all the units together. I had a, a, a warehouse I had rented and I would go to the warehouse, get all the packaging set, get everything set, hang out with my dudes, ship the shit and then take off. And then I only have to really work like three days a month. And so I was heading back and forth and me and my brother were basically just hanging out in Humboldt County and fucking at the gym and, uh, you know, playing at the river. I mean, it was like really good, good times. But a lot of it was, you know, you're trying to, you know, figure out how do you be a responsible 25 year old with your 13 year old brother. So, you know, it's a process. But did you, it, start, it, did you start the nursery at that point, Kev? Like, were you starting to cut clones at that point? Yeah, well, my first clones, I would have cut like probably 89, right, right in that zone. My, my partner threw me a, a, a stunning skunk plant and he, he wrapped a branch up in a trash bag and threw it up on my deck. And so I, I uh, went over to the, they, remember, they had no internet then, right? And so I went, to, I went to the library and I took a look at some plant propagation um, uh, books and I went home and propagated that shit. And I plugged my first cut. Did it work the first time? 
yeah, fucking A, it worked. And yeah, no, it was all right. I followed directions, you know? <laughs> and so that's that's my whole thing is that, like, w- what I know is that, like, I was saying doing your homework, but I'm someone that does their homework. Like, I don't usually show up to the job unprepared. And if I'm going to go do a thing and I don't understand that I research the living shit out of it so that I can understand it, just so that I'm able to get the details. It, it's I try to understand everybody's job I'm around so that I can just better understand how they all interrelate. It, it's trying to see the big picture. And it's really what fucks most people is they don't understand that there's 300 parts that make up a single thing. And, and what I do is I dissect everything into its raw components and then I put it back together. Then I rip it apart and put it back together and I rip it apart and put it back together. And if I can rip it apart and put it back together a couple times in a row, I think I have a pretty good idea what I'm looking at. Yeah. And so I, I always have that. It's, it's, it's labor and time intensive, but it's how my mind works. It, 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 I have to know. And I, I, I want to chew it up and it's, it's just, and it's, it's my own, enjoyment you know what i mean it, it I'm, I'm digging because i'm curious it's my curiosity that's driving it but the propagation i plugged and and i and i wasn't i was running i was running a little indoor up in humboldt when i got here but mostly i was just still doing all my shipping back east because i had my partners yeah. and then i started uh firing up a little bit larger indoor here in humboldt and what happened next is I start meeting all these people that were struggling with their cultivation. And at that time, all information was like proprietary, right? Nobody shared shit. Nobody shared fucking genes. Nobody shared info. And so I was somebody that was different in that regard where I was meeting people all the time. And for whatever reason, they trusted me to let me in their life. And when I took a look at their stuff, I was able to help them make better decisions. And so I started having this access to every cultivation. I mean, I've, I've seen as many fucking grows as anybody I know. I, I really have. I mean, unlimited amount of other people's shit that I've been able to play with, which for decades was so abnormal because for most people, they'd never seen anybody's grow but their own. Right. And to let somebody into your world was just insanity. But to let me in your world was you had somebody who was like a natural troubleshooter. And what it did is it allowed me to be able to put together these hypotheses, ideas that I had that I thought would manifest into better success. And the only way you can really put an idea into motion is to have many operators play with your ideas. And so I started really sharing my ideas with people and and driving forward on on refinement Kev, of Kev, can I ask you why <clears throat> why were you so open to sharing your knowledge if in that time it was really about like protecting your knowledge? What what made you feel comfortable <laughs> doing that? Well, it wasn't even about comfort. It was that I wasn't. It, it's really more like emotional shit. I wasn't valued when I was young for who I was, I was valued for what I could do. And so it took me, it took me, I think, until I had kids to really understand value, right? Because when you're not valued and you come from a very turbulent, uh, violent background, 
you you have to develop a value system for yourself or otherwise you're just fucking floats man you're just drifting in the ocean you you have to give yourself value and and i didn't realize i had an in, intrinsic value as a human i just knew i had a value as somebody that their mind was was fucking active and it allowed me to move through the dope game in Rhode Island. It let all these fucking br brutal gangsters let me into their lives because I wasn't ever trying to fuck anybody over. And what was coming out of my mouth was information or, or ideas that, that, that could catch somebody at a level and allow me to be able to have a value. And so when I get into cannabis and I'm seeing all these people struggling, what I realized was that if you're able to have a, a more stable business situation in your life, typically you can have a better life. And what I saw was everybody was competing for who was going to be, you know, most successful. And it's like, it's petty. It's every single person I bump into for years was like it, where if I had a dollar more than you, I was somebody. And to me, that shit doesn't mean anything. And what I wanted to see was I wanted to see people have the ability to be free that if you could if you could cultivate cannabis and make enough money then you could have a better life and so my my idea of of supporting people that i didn't know that well was really like a something that made me feel valuable as well where i was able to help people achieve an objective that i thought was crucial in life and i'm like in life i may not be able to do a lot but the one thing i seem to do well is fucking point out where the money is and so I had this vision of where the money is, and I, I still keep my eye on where the fucking money is. Where's the money? Because without it, you're not doing shit. And so what it did is it allowed people that were just regular individuals to get somebody in their life that wasn't trying to manipulate the situation and take advantage of the situation. It was to be able to share information, and I would explain it to them. I'm like, look, I, I, I think I got this figured out. Let's just try this. And what it did is it started creating success for people. And once you start empowering people with money, you have a radically different rank in the world where every room you walk in, everybody you see, you made the money. They, they look at you different. They fucking have to. They can't deny that fact that there was no money until you walked in the room and then you brought the money. And so I didn't make anybody have to you know, scream that at the top of their fucking lungs that, you know, Kev fucking made this happen. It wasn't about that. It was that I was allowing people to do better and it was letting me help people that I thought were good people. And, and I wasn't going after people that were necessarily going to be, uh, you know, the successful big ones. It was about really just good people and giving them assistance and steering them into ideas that were a little, little more cognizant of the, where they were at in time. And so it allowed me to be able to put a tremendous amount of ideas into play because I had so many operations that were running and I could see how my ideas worked with all these different situations. And so when, you know, to me, everybody, everybody wants to be smart. And after the fact, everybody comes out with, well, you know, I thought about that too. And I'm like, well, then fucking out the didn't say it on that day. And so that's why if you really look at my history on the net, it's me laying down information on purpose so that what you can have is a track record of, I said that shit 11 years ago. 
and and what it does it allows you to be able to have a clear idea of of those that are actually active in the world we're in and those that are are coming late to the game and and pretending that you know they were part of it too so when did you feel when did you get involved in the activism side of the industry because I, I i know you know was it prior to humboldt patient resource oh no, that shit would have been i mean i got a 215 in 97 but i was never an activist in terms of like you know less less further you know cannabis legalization or shit like that because i'm like holy fuck man i'm a, I'm a fucking full-blown criminal like you can't be running activists are not moving packs out the back goddamn door like you better be really fucking careful here right so to me, most activists were really, and, and it's not meant to be a slight, but I'm like, it's kind of like it is today where everybody wants to be, you know, your your social media manager. And I'm like, you got three fucking people following you. What help are you going to give me, right? And so to me, I look at a lot of the activists as, you didn't have the balls to do the dope game, but you were able to get people to to get in there and and they what they wanted a lot of them wanted was the social credit. They wanted the the it was kind of like when I first got into Humboldt County and then you started meeting people who bred cannabis and they would talk, they say, I'm a breeder. And, and it was it was as if they had been fucking crafted from God's hand himself, you know, and I'm laughing and I'm just like, You're taking that shit a little seriously, aren't you? And and that's kind of how I saw the activists too, where I'm like, you know. Like, without you, somehow I'm going to fucking struggle any fucking less than I am now. And so to me, I didn't have any any desire to be around activism. And I really didn't respect medical cannabis because most of the medical cannabis operators I met, except for, you know, Perone's crew out of San Francisco, most of them were just opportunists screaming, I'm a medical, I'm a medical advocate and I'm here for the patient. And I'm like, yeah, but you're selling them fucking expensive, dirty weed. So how can you be about anybody, right? And so for me, I'm just like, fuck it. I'm, I'm clear with this shit. I don't have to pretend I'm anybody other than I'm who I am, right? I don't have to hide my cannabis shit. No, I'm, I'm here to make money, and I like smoking weed. It, it's really fucking simple. And so I didn't get into any kind of activism until I would say like 208. Yeah. Because that's when I took over the dispensary, and it was when I got into the dispensary that I was just fucking horrified at how people in medical cannabis were treated and how can they you, can really you talk a little bit about you know the events leading up to your decision to become a part of the Humboldt Patient Resource Center and how that came about and yeah. what and what is the Humboldt Patient Resource Center as well? Totally, totally. The Humboldt Patient Resource Center was one of the very first dispensaries in in the United States. I mean, I'm talking like it's in the first two or three that popped into California. So historically relevant, right? And at the time, I was uh, I was happy, man. I was I was running all my own shit. I was probably like forty, had a, a beautiful girl, had a, a good life. Fucking money was pouring in, and I just asked myself, like, what's the world gonna look like in the future? And I just saw the picture that we're in today. I mean, I had a fucking epiphany. And I mean, I saw that picture so clear there was no word. I'm still working off of that map I created that day. And what had happened was the HPRC is this historical facility, and uh, a friend of mine was involved with it and said, hey, they're having some trouble. They, they would like to see if you could give them a hand. And I was like, I don't really want to fuck with these people because most of these dispensaries are just pain in the ass to me. And I ended up meeting the owner in a, 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 a odd fashion where I met her at a, like a school play. And so she and I are in line getting coffee, and we're talking. 
And all of a sudden she realizes who I am and I realize who she is. And I said, oh shit. I said, we can, we can talk. And so I went over there to the facility and checked it out. And I realized what they needed was they just needed some modernization in terms of like ideas and gene pool. And so I brought them in stuff that was gonna absolutely sell. And I helped them understand how to put together a, a clone operation that was effective, you know? At the time when someone plugged a tray, like plugging two trays of clones was a fucking good deal. And I'm like, I'm, I'm doing 300 an hour. So you're doing 300 a week, I'm doing 300 an hour. The, the difference was dramatic. And I was just like, listen, let me help you uh, move genes into the system and let me get you some genes. And I did it as a favor. I didn't charge him. I said, look, you're good people. And I said, and then you got a you know, good staff. What you need is just some support. And, and then I, I left him alone and came back and checked on him a couple times and just to kind of make sure everything was right. And it had helped tremendously. It helped stabilize. It stopped that, uh, that downward trajectory, which is they were, they were about to go fucking bankrupt. And I was cool. But then I had the realization that the world was going to change and that if I didn't enter the new world of, of like what we would call quasi-legal cannabis, then I wouldn't get the experience I needed to play the game as we went forward because you can't – it's like armchair quarterback shit. Everybody, it's like fucking fighting. Fighting's the good one. Everybody's kicking ass till you get fucking cracked. And now it's survival, right? And so the only way you can learn how to survive after you got cracked is to get cracked and and really learn about what it's like to step into a fucking hole behind you because your legs are numb and how, how there's three people in front of you now because your fucking vision's all fucked up. That's what you really need in life is to know what it's like to get the shit kicked out of you so that you can maneuver when you get in that situation again. And I just knew that you had to get into legal in order for this education to take place. And so I went and spoke to him and said, hey, I'll take the, I'll take the position. And it was uh, a cultivation director position. So I, I take the operation with them. But the thing was that I hadn't had a fucking job in like 25 years, right? And I was so freaked out about having a job that I wrote a contract to protect me so that I had no set hours, no set days, no fucking dress code, no uniform, no badge, no, no fucking time clock. And you had to give me X amount of weed every week. So I had free pot to share and smoke with people at the shop. And the, the fucking lady was looking at this and she's just like, if I sign this, it says, basically, you don't have to show up. And I said, exactly. I said, what it does is it, it allows me to be able to be in a position where I want to be here. And I'm not someone that works off the clock. Like I'm not a clock watcher. I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm somebody that can go fucking days on a job. And so if you just, just trust that my methods are odd, but they're effective, it'll work. And so I came in and took over that facility and we, within, within a short period of time, uh, had turned that fucking thing around financially. And then I ended up winning a dispensary in Northern California. Right. And, and I was like, holy fuck. And I said that when we got the award, I was like, I didn't even know there was a competition. And so people started talking shit about, well, it was a fucking accident then, because if you didn't know, then you, you locked yourself into it. And I said, lock you motherfuckers. And I fucking did it again the next year on purpose this time though, right? And I said back to back. And then after that, I don't give a shit because competitions really don't mean much to me. They just mark a moment, right? It, it, it doesn't define you for your whole fucking life. And it was, 
about really changing how dispensaries functioned and operated. And what I did is I just ripped the fucking doors off the building basically and let the public come into our world so that the, the public got benefit. And I was able to help tremendous number of people understand that your your cannabis world is fucking crashing around you because you're still operating with old genes. You're not current and modern. And at the time, right, like a good OG cut was like five fucking grand, right? So you're paying five to 10 grand for a cologne. I'm putting them in on the shelf at fucking 10 bucks. It had never been done. It had never been done and no one understood it. How did you handle that? How did you like handle the fallout that inevitably came from doing something like that? Because the, the fallout was people were mad at me because I was allowing people to get access to the things that made the money. And to me, I'm like, that's not your role in life is to gatekeep people's success. And, and what I realized was that I was allowing people that was, well, see, once I got into the dispensary, what I got to see was a, a body of people I had never seen. And they had never met anybody like me either, where, you know, I was letting them know. I'm like, listen, I said, everybody else that fucks around here, they a bunch of kids. And I said, and, and I spent my fucking whole life in this game. Right. And so you're talking to someone who's not here to fucking come. I, I was losing. I fucking lost money getting into the dispensary end of it by fucking hundreds of thousands a year. Easy because it tied me into a fucking job and didn't let me do all the other shit. But I was to me, I was already up. I wasn't a kid. I wasn't non-successful. I was already I was already successful. And so. I wasn't trying to gatekeep. And what I realized was all these people that were coming in for medical, so many of them really needed a little bit of extra money and some weed they could fucking use. And to me, you know, locking them off of access was just, it just wasn't right. And so what I knew was that I wasn't trying to protect those that got lucky by getting a clone because your ass didn't create it either. You got a hold of it. Now it's fucking your genes, right? And I'm like, look, it's none of our genes. Like, I'm collecting this shit all over the place. And I just pushed it into the system at a level that had never been done before. No one had ever pushed what I pushed into the system. And it radically changed Humboldt County because instantly the quality of herb fucking skyrocketed because what you're, what you're looking at now is premium shit. And I reached out to every criminal I knew and said, listen, if you go get a 215 from a doctor, you can come down to my facility and then fucking travel with the clones. And they were like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And so I just reached out to all the gangsters and said, yo, come to dispensary and we can load up. And what it did is it allowed there to be access to genes and it allowed me to generate millions of fucking dollars instantly for that business that we used, or at least I was using, to subsidize so many of the people that were poor and having to struggle as a kid, the, some of the shit I fucking had to go through, it profoundly impacted my view of struggle. And what I know is that a little bit of help goes a long way. And so what I was trying to do with the medical patients and the medical people was the same thing I did when I got to Humboldt and stuff was just try to provide assistance to people in a way that allowed them to have a better existence. And, and I don't think almost any of my peers agreed with what I was doing. They just could, they, they thought I'd lost my fucking mind. But the bottom line is that 
it's it's in it's in that living with the human being that you really have real fucking life and i didn't understand what i was doing at the time in terms of i didn't realize the impact i knew i was giving you immediate impact but i had no idea i was cultivating fucking legions of people into success in a way that was gracious where i didn't ask them to thank me publicly i didn't you didn't have to give me a fucking blowjob you you just got the help because i saw for that moment when i met you that you were cool and it, that's all it took was like you okay and i would give you the assistance and what it ended up doing was it ended up creating incredible numbers of people who are successful and kicking ass to this day so i ended up building this fucking massive squad of people around me that did really well and went on and had great lives and are, and are still my friends to this day but they're also like business associates because they were able to launch up and go and you know it's it's just awesome to be part of that you know what i mean like you helped cultivate a better situation and so i didn't really give a fuck if people liked me or they didn't like me i still don't care uh, i i what i know is if i hand you a hundred dollar bill every time you see me you'll love me but if i don't you don't like me so really i don't give a fuck if you like me or you don't i i i care that my my girl likes me i care that my friends like me i i care that my children like me but other than that all i want is fucking respect so you don't have to like me, but you can't fucking deny my push. You cannot deny that I'm smacking this shit in the fucking face every time I'm in the game. And that's the only thing I care about in terms of professional shit is respect. The like and dislike. And, you know, it's the same thing with, like, me tying in with bigger companies. All of a sudden, everybody, you know, you're a fucking sellout. And I'm laughing because it's people that would cut off their fucking left, left nut for any opportunity. But because they don't get offered it, they're real. But when you get offered opportunity and take it, you're a sellout. Yeah. And so it's it's how I just see the picture. And what I know is that I got fucking shunned because I helped people that had no value. And then I get shunned when I fuck with people that have the most value, right? <laughs> so yeah. you it's just the people in business. Don't give a fuck what people think. How have you it's something that I wanted to bring up and, and now I think is the best time is that you know you've been able to maintain a level of credibility in the industry when dealing with companies that you like as you mentioned are mega giant corps that you know other individuals if tied to them would have a really hard time walking through doors and showing face in the, in the places that you have absolutely no problem walking in those doors and showing faces so do do you think it was it's just the years of dedication that you've put in that allow you to do something like that or is it something else well it's a little bit of both that you know the dedication part is my is experience right it means that like i've been living in this shit so i'm definitely not fucking green well i'm green but you know what i mean not green in the other way but so much of it is that no matter how much i climb up or what i do i never forget my roots i never forget who i am i never forget how hard it was to get here and I'm still always accessible and available to people as long as you're not disrespectful. As long if you come at me in a, in a fucking normal manner, I'll give you I'll give you a little bit of my time. And and if you're a prick, I just tell you to fuck off because I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? But if you're cool, and and you sit down next to me and you're like, hey, I I could I please ask you a question? it's fucking rare that i don't take that time out of my life to do it and it's it's 
it's it's it's it's the human element, right? It's because I really do want to see people do well. And as long as you're coming at me in a, in a manner that's that's respectful, where you're not trying to fucking pretend that you're smarter than I am so you can use me as a tool in your fucking plan, right? Like, and if I see any of that shit, man, I just cut you out. Yeah. I think also acknowledging it. I mean, you've never been, you've never not acknowledged any of these, you know, partnerships or... or, or oh, yeah, I don't hide from it. Yeah. I put it right in your fucking face because I'm not ashamed of it because I know that I know what I'm doing. What yeah. I'm doing is I'm allowing my skills to further the world I'm in because ultimately we need the movement to continue. You can't this stagnation is people want to hold time still. That's the yeah. single greatest fucking sin you can commit. Because when you choose to suddenly wake the fuck up, you're not only waking up today, you're years late because you you held on and tried to keep something as it was. And so for me, what I know is that we're in a, a tide that moves continuously. And what I want to be able to do is continue to move with it. And so as I started to develop and, and become more, I'd say like powerful in my influence, I started really seeing Humboldt County as a, a different situation where I realized I had the ability to help Humboldt County in a way that it was unique because I had such a platform yeah. and, and I wanted to talk about the greatness of Humboldt and the, the legend of Humboldt and the quality of the product that came from here and the unique people that were assembled here from cannabis, you know? And so that, that, that desire to assist lets you also understand that in order for us to move weed, we need bigger companies to fucking buy the weed, push the weed, market the weed. Yeah. I think stomach companies to, to develop the genes. This is a this is a great topic that I think we need to open up just a little bit more because I mean, if if you know Kevin Jodry is is getting criticism for partnering with large scale commercial entities, it's like it's like we 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 breed this culture in cannabis where if if you're about the plant, you you really can only attain a, so much success, and then if you attain any more success than this, you fucking sold that world. You're not, you're not part of this community. You're not part of the plant. And I think that it's only individuals right now, like yourself, who've built up the social credibility that can handle um, going out in public, making these partnerships, and still being able to be a voice in the community. But most people can't do that, and, and they struggle with that, you know, how do I succeed while still being part of this group that I, that, that I value myself so much. Like we have to understand like the Seagram's family in Canada were a bunch of gangsters. Like they killed people. They fucking, they that's, were. That's alcohol getting And now a hundred years later, they are one of the most respected families in Canada. So do you like, did they sell out like that, that we need to ask, right? Like did, did Seagram sell out or are they just, incredibly successful and visionaries so but isn't that the point eventually if you start here you're eventually trying to legitimize yourself fully to that extent it is you're trying to develop your business world but what happens is what i discovered is right in cannabis it's this weird thing where if i make a dollar more than you i sold out but if i make a dollar less than you i'm a loser and so 
I'm, I just don't allow people in cannabis to fucking control what I do because when the people of cannabis, what is this? It's like a fucking core group of masterminds who control the world. No, it's a bunch of cats online that are typing out of their mom's fucking basement. So you're up at three in the morning fucking spamming my shit, right? And I fucking get back on there with you and laugh. I'll poke somebody so good two or three years later, they'll fucking come back and still be pissed off. Because it's really about helping other people understand that you can't live your life being told what to do by others. The community is the same as the fucking government. It's, it's a group of people, strangers above you that tell you what to do and you follow the advice. And as long as you're a good little boy or girl, then you're okay. But if you do something they don't like, they don't. And so, you know, I, I had some shit go down a number of years ago and people were fucking losing it. And someone said, how are you going to deal with it? I said, easy. In a couple of years, they're all going to be working at McDonald's flipping fucking burgers. They won't have time to talk shit. And that's what fucking happened. Everybody's gone. And so you, you have to be able to be clear about what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do what you're trying to do. And what I know is that any any company that's bigger than you scares you. And it, it was like you just pointed out, there's a certain level you can rise to, right? When I when I talk to scientists that are working at Syngenta and you know, formerly Monsanto Bear, right? You know, when we're sitting there having a conversation, you know, they're they're just like they're in fucking horror because they get drilled for their alliances with these companies. And they're trying to explain. I remember I was listening to Syngenta scientists trying to explain to somebody, you don't catch what I'm trying to tell you. There's only two or three companies in the world that can hire me and pay me at this level. I spent my whole fucking life going to school, doing all these projects, developing all this IP. Where am I supposed to do? Work at the fucking corner fucking lot? I need to work for a big company or I will not get compensation for what I did. And I have fucking PhD debt. And like, it's just real stuff. And we don't care. We're like, sell out, sell out. And sell out to me is a nice way of saying that um, nobody asked you to join. Because what I know is nobody would want your fucking ass because you're not bringing any heat. You're not bringing any value. You're not bringing any fucking skills. And you're not trying to lift people up around you. And so what happens is, is that what we have is everybody wants to be a superstar. Like that's my whole thing with herb in general, in terms of like public shit that I do. It's not about me. I, I can tell you, like I can see a picture really well and I can lay it out, but I try to keep the focus on the topic. I keep the focus on the subject. I'm not the fucking subject in, in this interview here I am, but in terms of how I approach the industry and the world I'm in, I'm just somebody who's an operator within the system who's trying to do the best they can. And I just don't want to succeed by myself. I don't think that that's a, a healthy idea. And I think that if you have a peanut butter sandwich and there's a fucking bite left, you don't have to throw it the fuck on the ground. You can give it to somebody and you don't have to fucking take a photo of them. You don't got to put them on Instagram. I seen this shit the other day with somebody I know. They were pretending to do some generous shit and they go to a homeless guy that's in a dumpster and then they film him. And then they film him passing him some money and the camera lets you see the money. So, you know, there was a $60 given to this fucking guy. And I'm watching this shit and I'm like, who the fuck does this? Who goes and films fucking homeless people and then you're giving them some fucking little bit of money and then you open your mouth and give them a lecture on fucking lifestyle and shit, right? You don't even, you've never even met this fucking guy. You have no idea why he's in the dumpster. You don't know why he's fucking homeless. 
and you're over here giving some lecture in life, putting yourself up as some magnanimous individual, like look at my incredible generosity, look how I help the homeless, and then I give them lectures so they can understand how to rise to my level. And I'm watching that shit, right? And I'm like, that is not the fucking point. And you get no real loyalty. And what I know is that that when when push come to shove, I show the fuck up. There's never been a time I abandoned one of my fucking dudes. That that is something that I don't give a fuck, right or wrong. It, it's the same thing with like the whole Philos piece. The issue with Philos is, you know, I meet I meet the sign I meet them when they're in a fucking office at you know University of Oregon, right? They're in a little tiny lab, and we all meet. And they they have me come and speak to him and say, hey, you know, your name is in every conversation we go with jeans. It's fucking weird. It's like wherever we go in the world, your name's popping out. And it was because I had done so much gene trafficking and gene development. And then when we pushed all the CBG, the CBD genes into the world, no one had ever like that's really the thing that I did that had, I think, the greatest impact socially. It's just the thing that um, we I, I, I leave it as it was a good deed. But you know, CBD pops into the world, and Courtney does the the work. Can you talk about a little bit about that, Kevin, and the work. Yeah, we can go into it. Yeah. So, so there's so William Courtney, uh, 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 a medical doctor. His uh, his gal has a health problem, and she can't conceive a child. And so he starts to really you know research endocannabinoid system. And he says, "Hey, I think that if we were able to stimulate her endocannabinoid system, she would be able to have my child." And so it was really this personal desire to reproduce a child with this woman that drove this man into this direction. And so he comes and speaks to us at the shop. And I think he's out of his fucking mind because he's telling me what, what you know, uh, cannabinoid medicine can do. And I mean, it was so far reaching that I was like, holy fuck, this stuff can't do this much. But I said, you know, Bill, if it did just 10% of what you're talking about, it would still be a miracle. I said, so what we'll do is I'll uh, I'll put floor space in to do the work and, and we'll run the trials right here out of the shop. And what it did is it let me see what happened to people that were understimulated in the endocannabinoid systems. What happened when we stimulated the system? And what happened when we started to provide green juice to people? What happened when we started really getting CBD into people? Um, what happens when you have doctors and nutritionists and support so that you're able to really separate a lot of the issues and say, hey, this is what cannabis is doing for these individuals. Well, when I saw that shit take place, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And Bill ends up uh, going into politics and the program halts. But the problem was nobody took the fucking website down. And so the website's still up saying, hey, there's this program, and I'm getting inundated now with people from all over the planet about this thing. And I realized that it was, it was, the, it was our opportunity to legitimatize cannabis because the mainstream needed a reason to not hate psychoactive cannabis use. And I realized that if I could get people to be able to be exposed to uh, cannabis in a way that was benign to them, then what it would do, it, was, it would allow us 
to to start to get a different view of people who use cannabis psychoactively. And I, I never considered myself a medical cannabis person. So I got, I got into medical cannabis and I went on this fucking crusade, but mostly it was shame because I couldn't believe that as a career drug dealer, we were just treating people that were so fucking desperate so poorly. It was embarrassing, man. I'm like, holy Christ. The, the dispensaries relied on on sick people to fund them, right? Because everybody else was growing their own dope. And for me, having people that were ill and taking their money was just, it was abusive. And so my whole thing was to empower them. So like we put, I put together all these programs for education and, and to get people to be able to understand how to function and cultivate and, and handle their own shit and create the networks needed to be able to formulate and make into other products and, you know, all that stuff. So was the when, CBD from Lawrence or where was the CBD from? The CBD, no, Lawrence, Lawrence was working on his own piece. Uh, Courtney grabbed, uh, th- th- at that time, there was three high CBD genes floating around, right? There was the work that uh, Lawrence had done on his, um, he had a back injury. And so he had worked one of his lines to make him feel better. And when they tested it, it came out at like, you know, five, 6%. And then there was Wade Louder, who had that Harlequin, which was that one-to-one that Harborside pushed into the system a little bit in terms of the sale of the, the flower. But they didn't run with it because the same thing. It's they didn't know how to market it. And so uh, Lawrence, Ringo, you know, he starts pushing that out. And then Bill got the canatonic line from Jaime out of resin seeds out of Spain. And so Jaime flew in with the mail brought the brought the jeans in and then the project went down at my spot so i wasn't involved in it except for like giving you the floor space and helping you run the program right this cat named dreddy aaron was the breeder and bill and jaime you know came in with the jeans but what happened was you know we started working on development of the jeans because as soon as as soon as this takes place you got you got samantha miller from pure analytics doing all this um, predicative analysis and so we started, you know, just creating CBD genes because we were able to start using predicative analysis and breeding to be able to, uh, you know, narrow a population down rapidly. And so we start creating this population of CBD gene pool. And then Bill gets out of cannabis, goes into politics. They don't take the site. The world's contacting me. And I just knew that if, if we could do something, it would be incredible. And at the time, everyone knew that CBD was valuable, but no one knew how to market or to sell it. And so nobody wanted to put it in the system until they could figure out how to monetize it. But to me, the monetization was going to be the fact that we were going to get the population of the United States and the world to see cannabis in a different way, which would then allow us to be able to continue our life. And so I was clear about it where I had an agenda. I want to still stay alive. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to push these genes into the system like no one had ever fucking done. And what it did is it flooded the world with CBD genes. And so the amount of CBD material that we were flowing into the system. And then, you know, like when I was at Wonderland, we gave away fuck over, you know, probably almost like a million and a half, two million dollars in fucking clones in CBD clones for free. It, it was it was all about trying to get people who had medical need to benefit. And then the industry goes from, uh, you know, medical cannabis into industrial hemp where they're pulling, you know, CBD out of other countries. And so all of a sudden the CBD industry in the United States just collapses. 
which is fine though. It wasn't my concern. My concern was to get the genes into people's hands, give them the information, make the connections so that what you'd have is autonomy. And I think that it was the, it was unbelievably impactful and powerful because it, it, I got people from all over the world that still hit me up saying, fuck bro. Like the genes came from you. Like we know where the genes came from. And, and that's really all I wanted to see happen was I wanted to see there be the, I guess in, in, in some way that was my activism. Yeah. You know, I wanted to see people not have to get the shit kicked out of them for weed. And, and I didn't have any embarrassment. I wasn't like, I was hiding my identity all the time prior because I didn't want to go to fucking prison, but I wasn't ashamed at what I did. And, but, but when I got into medical cannabis, what I saw was so many people were having such emotional issues with the pressure of others on their choices that by the time they really got into medical cannabis, it was too fucking late. And all I became was a hospice. And, and the number of people that would come into my office and sit down and just break the fuck down, or they'd come in with their wife and their wife would break down because one of them was dying. And then it was just fucking daily, you know? Yeah, that's and so I I I couldn't turn my back on him because it was just too fucking raw, and it was tough for the people because they were desperate and they had to come all the way to talk to a drug dealer and stuff, and so they'd be furious at you because the system had failed them and they had done everything right, and now they're having to talk to somebody that they previously would have convicted. I had a guy come to me for fucking medical help, and I was like, I think you were on a jury that tried to convict me. And this poor fucking guy was in horror. He was like, whoa. I said, no, no, it's all good. I, I beat it. The, the main fucking thing is you understand a little different now, right? And he was like, whoa, yeah, I have need. I said, exactly. Now that you have need, there's a fucking reason. And so that's that was the truth of it. And, and so the HPRC, it, it allowed me to be able to, to do some really positive stuff. And what happened at the same time was nobody was – using their real name in cannabis. Everybody was still wearing bags over their fucking heads and stuff and no real name. And when we went down to that first High Times Cannabis Cup in uh, San Francisco, which was funny because we won best booth with a fucking table. We had a folding table. I brought a couple pounds of fucking PK and OG. And all we did was fucking smoke out and chill with people the whole time. And we won best fucking booth. I mean, we defeated every fucking company with a white fucking folding table, bro. Me and Big Oose and the boys, we tore that fucking place I up. believe it. I yeah, believe cause, it. Yeah, because I went over to, the, they had those huge, you know, the, the 40-foot vac bags and shit they were filling. And I went over to the, the company and said, hey, here's a fucking fat bag. Just go big. Yeah. And they were like. Like, do you want credit? I said, no, just fucking enjoy it with the crowd. Well, they brought that whole thing over to our table and our table became the fucking source of everybody getting all the fucking high. So we were having a great time, but I get hit up with a a media source there at the time. And they said, hey, can we talk to you? And I said, sure. And they were like, you mean like with no bag on your head and your real name? And I said, yeah. And the minute I gave that interview from that minute forward, it was just nonstop. And for me, what I realized was that everybody that was on the computer, they were so caught up with themselves and how incredible they were about, like, look at my incredible shit, that why would you want to watch? They weren't giving up any information that had any value. And so what I realized was when the media just started to pour into my life, what I did is I tried to use it to break down problems, talk about issues, let's get discussion, let's highlight shit. 
And because the reporters, reporters are like politicians, man. They can pick up a fucking lie right now. And so that, that, the reporters are different. They try not to lie. Politicians are professional liars. And so with professional liars, you tell them the truth, it's overwhelming to them. And with reporters, when you tell them the truth and you're not trying to put yourself into the conversation, they, they're overwhelmed with the fact that you're a resource. And so what I did is I started developing relationships with reporters all over the country and world, really, and said, listen, I said, if you're going to cover our world and you want me to review the article, let me review the article and I'll proof it for you to make sure that it's fucking legitimate. Otherwise, because half the shit coming out then was just fantasy land bullshit. Yeah. And so what it did is it allowed me to develop relations with reporters everywhere. And every time they wanted to do a good story on something, I would find them the people to talk to. So what it did is it allowed us to start shaping a narrative. And when we started getting into like dispute and debate, so I mean, I brawled it out with the Washington Post. They had the Washington Post come to fuck with me and we went at it and it was over cartel involvement in Humboldt County. And I fucking got them because they were wrong. And when you got the Washington, that, 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 and that was a Pulitzer, that, that took a video Pulitzer, right? And so once you're involved in a Pulitzer level article and you're, you're fucking around with the top of the fucking food chain in terms of reporters and you're, you're, you're absolutely shaping the direction, it works. There was a time where there was a guy named Peter Hecht, right? Now, Peter Hecht is cool now, but Peter was a fucking assassin on the dope game because he had such bad view of all medical operations, right? And so Hecht had, had done a hatchet job on every fucking dispensary you could get his hands on. Well, I don't know who this guy is, so he shows up at my shop with his, his cameraman, and we're interviewing, and I just let him know, listen, don't film any of the people in the store because it's against, you know, HIPAA rights, but it's just something I don't agree with, right? They're not here to get filmed. They're here to, to buy cannabis and have some privacy. Well, I catch the cameraman secretly filming them, right? And so I threw both of these motherfuckers right out of the store. I said, what are you guys, fucking two? So I threw them out of the fucking store, and they're in horror, right? And they're just like, because they, they're here to fuck me and do a hatchet job. And I don't know this, but I fucking socked them. And I was like, get your ass out of here, man. You fuckers are like little kids. Well, they came back a couple hours later and said, we apologize. Could we, could we redo the interview? And I said, yeah, as long as you can fucking behave like gentlemen. I said, you know, this shit. I said, that's some petty shit right there. I said, you, 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 you can fuck with me. But I said, but you're over there. It, it reminded me of the shit I saw in San Francisco, where it was funny because, like, I, I, I don't, I, I don't have a gay background in Rhode Island, right? So, like, uh, homosexuality exists, but that shit's buried. But you get to the Bay Area, and all of a sudden, you get a lot of gay friends because you're you got a lot of gay population, and all of a sudden, you see this outing shit where people out you for being gay, right? And it tripped me out because I was like, it would fucking destroy their lives. And so I just don't like the idea of outing. It, it, I got to see it through the, the, the gay world where, where they would out you for being gay and then it would fucking tear shit up. And it was just like, whoa. And so to me, the, the same thing that they were doing is they were trying to out people, you know? And I'm like, you can't fucking do that shit here. He, in this room, these people are safe. And so Pete and this cameraman, they do the interview. And then he hits me up and he's like, hey, it's going to be okay. And when someone tells me it's going to be okay, it scares me because I'm like, well, what the fuck was it going to be if it wasn't okay? So I research who this guy is and I said, oh my fucking God, this dude is a fucking hatchet man. Holy shit. But 
I got the cover of that sack B and it was the first time anybody really had been, you know, I, I'm probably in front of like two or 3000 plants on the rack, right? Like a clone rack. So I was, it was at least 1600 on the rack. Yeah. I've seen the picture. And, and he, he, he writes that article and it was one of where we looked like we were, you know, normal people. Yeah. And, and so what had happened was, that you know i was able to like because i wasn't trying to get glory on the fucking page you were able to fight for what's right and and reporters and individuals that were aggressive politicians that are aggressive once they saw you in real life they realized that you were real and so there there's no way there's no way to you know go about it it's just like when i got into humble county with with the dispensary with the hprc so i go to work for him and we transform this place into a fucking juggernaut you know and and me and the lady just had differences of opinion on how to how to move forward and it was a bummer too because i didn't really want to run my own shit i'm not i'm not someone who likes to do the administrative end of it like like just like i told her i said really i said i said it's gonna sound funny but if you treat me like i'm a fucking field general it works better. And basically you just let me run your campaign and you, so you do the, you support, you can do, you can be the queen, the king, whatever the fuck you want to do. I said, I'm only here to run the fucking campaign. It's the war that I'm about. It's the, it's the struggle that I dig. And I didn't want to run my own shit. I wanted to be able to work in that capacity so that I could put my efforts into where I really enjoy spending them. But we couldn't, we couldn't find common ground as we went forward. And I ended up uh, peeling out, and that's when I picked up Wonderland. But when I took over the HPRC, we, you know, we had lit up, we, we, were gonna, we were lighting up a huge um, uh, mill. So we were putting in one of the first industrial grows in America, and the feds got involved in, and shut down like all cannabis and fucking Humboldt. And they were going to shut, and they were going to shut everything down. And so I had the chief of police and the city council come spend the day with me at the shop just so they could understand that like, look, what we're doing here is legit. And it worked. And they said, whoa, you're legit. And they shut down every other spot but us. And, and that, so was, what it did, that was Wonderland? No, that, no, that was uh, that HPRC. Was okay. Yeah, so the HPRC days, it was intense because it was the beginning of the, the normalization of cannabis. And so for me, because I had such a notorious history for sparking up so much shit, like when I go to these city council meetings, people would be fucking in horror, like... <laughs> The finger. Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? And I'd be like, oh, I'll tell you who I am and I'll tell you what I fucking did. I said, because what I'm trying to tell you is there's nobody else in the fucking room that can actually answer this question because no one else did any goddamn thing. And so what it did is it allowed us to really be able to just take the dirty shit right off the table where the, if you're going to call me, it's the first thing I do is introduce myself. Quick criminal. And then now, now you can't throw that in my face. Done. And now we can get into the fucking facts. And so what it did was it allowed us to... It's like the eight-mile thing. It's like when Eminem <laughs> well, everything you does the trailer trash thing and then... Yeah, yeah, you yeah. fuck my lady, so what? Uh, <laughs> your road will get run through next. And so it's, it's just called real life, right? And, but what I did differently was I, I approached every single politician privately at their office and said to them, listen, I know you know who I am. You have to understand that I took on this facility. I, I have nothing going on illegally. I said, the one thing I can promise all of you is you will not catch me moving dope out the back fucking door. There's nothing I'm doing that's wrong right now. I'm fucking crystal clean. And I was. There was no no bullshit. I, had, I gave up all my shit, passed every contact to my crew. Like, 
I stepped out of my world completely so that I could fight this fight and fight it on the level needed, which was in your fucking face because everybody else was, was living this duality of life. And the problem was it was, it was creating a situation where you couldn't really argue in the way you needed. And what I did is I approached him all privately and said, look, you can't pretend any longer that this isn't going down. And so what it did is it allowed us to start developing better relations with the politicians and with the, the law enforcement and with regulatory so that we could start shaping it. It's just like I approached the water board. I was the first farm in California to, to I approached the water board and said, listen, I want to build a farm. It's going to be for weed. I want you guys to come out and, and help me lay out all the the restrictions. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, you know, it's an inevitability. I said, so instead of me playing fuck around, why don't I just have you come out and you're going to tell me what to do. And I'm going to do that first. And then when I'm done, then we'll spark it up. And what it did is it created this radically different type of relationship with regulatory groups because no one had ever been like that. So when I had, I had the head of the state come in on like agricultural shit and he got kind of cocky and rude. And I told him, fuck off, throw you out of my office. I said, you don't regulate me. I don't have to fucking listen to anything coming out of your fucking mouth. And he was like, whoa. And I said, well, hey, you started. You 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 open your mouth and go shitty. And I'm fucking throwing it right back in your face. I said, you're talking to me like I'm not legit. And I said, and and we are legit. And And what it did is it changed the relationships because we needed that to happen so that others that weren't in my position could benefit from it. See, what I know is that, like, I'm not afraid to fuck with you. Fear isn't something I, I live in that much. So for me to, like, fucking get up with you is I'm not that nervous. And the chips are going to fall where they fucking fall. But what I know is for most people, that's not the case. And that they end up getting victimized in life because they don't have that ability to fight to the death. And so what you have to do is you got to really have people who are willing to fight to the death and then let the benefit flow outward. And so for me, when we got into a lot of the legalization end of it, you know, the argument for so many people was, well, if they're not going to get up on the stage, then they shouldn't get the benefit. It should only be us that are doing this that should get the benefit. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? I said, you got people that are terrified, that are good people, and you're going to exclude them from the future industry because they weren't bold enough. And the cats that were screaming that they were bold enough, none of them had ever been arrested, right? So as we go forward over this couple-year period, they all start getting hit. And that's when you see people melting the fuck down. And we were cracking up. And we're like, oh, my God, no wonder why you're so bold. You never got fucked before. And for me, what I wanted to see was I wanted to see the population of people around me do well. I wanted to see the neighborhood do well. It, it, and it's funny because it's, 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 it's almost like you're still a child where my childhood was so fucking hard that I just really still to this day want to see people do well. Where like if you have to fight that fucking hard just to live, that just, just to survive is a fucking jam. Nobody should have to go through that shit continuously. And I just knew that I was in a position that I could make a, a, an argument differently than most could because I had the facility and I also had the experience. And so, let me ask you this, Kev. Do you think that working with the county on licensing your farm, Port Royal, helped the licensing of Wonderland? Like, did, was that because you were working with them on two projects? Did it make them, you know, no. more apt one to the no, other? No. 
not at all. Wonderland was a fucking nightmare. Wonderland's a, Wonderland's a trip. See, what happened with Humboldt was they they have the dispensaries, and then um, the Humboldt County Growers Association at the time, HGA. Uh, now it's HCGA, and it's a little different group. But they put together this this idea that we were going to create licensed dispensaries and then licensed farms to feed them. Except when they put that plan together, they broke it into two pieces. And so the county passes, let's build dispensaries, but then they don't pass, let's do the fucking farms. So the dispensaries have no ability to sell flour because you can't get farm from the licensed Humboldt County farm to sell. Right? So it was, it was fucking some brilliant political maneuvering. And so um, I'm running the HPRC and the dispensary in um, Southern Humboldt, um, they light up and they end up uh, having some catastrophic failures because just like most fucking distros of today, their main goal is to try to get as much money out of you as possible then run for their fucking life. Well, they crashed and I knew the person that uh, owned the building. And so the person that held the real estate was a good friend of mine and I was able to work out a deal where I bought the company from the owners. And then what I did is I paid out all the debt to all the people in the community that got fucked. So this way we could kind of get the goodwill straight. Oh yeah, I came out the pocket of fucking fortune. But there was the only, it's the only way to do it though, right? Like you, you take on a business that, that just fucking harpooned everybody. The only way to fix that is to have the people that came in and say, okay, look, you got fucked by the last person. What do I owe you? And people just start coming in and letting you know, all right, you owe me fucking 1500 bucks. They fucked me on. All right. And then boom. And then you pay them the 15 and now you have goodwill. They might not even be a client, but they're not going to run around screaming. And so I, I bought the business from the company and now they hadn't given out a, a dispensary permit in nine years. Right. So no fucking permits. I take the license. I buy the company. But really, it was a cash payment on the side, which let me then enter the company as CEO. So I had this idea. I said, listen, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy myself into your company. I'm going to install myself as CEO. Once we get the corporate paperwork set, I'm dumping the rest of you motherfuckers out of here right now. And you're just taking your cash. And took the license and then went over to the county. And because I had done so much work for the HPRC, brawling out with the feds, brawling out with the county, and every time I worked with the county, we were cool. So the county ended up, they fucked us and, and, and really cost us like almost, you know, half a million in lost revenue at the HPRC. And I argued with them in public that we, if we sue you and we do have the right and we'll win, we'll cripple this fucking county and we'll also destroy the relationship with medical and, and regulatory. I said, so we'll just take the screw in. And but it's on it's on tape. We're here in a fucking set on a, in a, in, a, in a room that's been recorded. So this way, everybody's really clear what the fuck is going on. I'm dropping this. I'm dropping this suit so that we can have a better relationship because you guys fucked us and you know it. And my lawyers are going to eat you alive. And instead, we dropped it. And well, what it did is it created a really different relationship where they were like, "Whoa, you are flexible." Because what I know is that it's this long-term deal. And I told every one of the politicians at the time, I'm going to be here fucking long after you. Just know this. I said, you're here right now, but you will not be here during my reign. And so what we're trying to do is make the best situation possible. Well, all of that allowed me to walk into the county and take the fucking license in like 12 minutes. It, it was the duration of me sitting down saying, yo, what's up? And they said, hey, Kev, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I just CEO'd this, this firm. I said, I just need to sign a license over. And they said, well, we don't know what you're going to do with this place. You can't sell any weed. There's no weed that can be sold. And I said, it's okay. I'll figure it out. 
because what I knew was I was going to turn it into a nursery because I read the I read the regs like reading regs is something I'm good at. And there, it didn't state you couldn't sell clones and it didn't state that you couldn't sell concentrate. And so I knew that the new world of extract was exploding. And all we needed to do was get glass blowers to come in and create all the conversion pieces to fit into to bongs and stuff because there was no fucking dab industry then. And so I have all these blowers come in and create every fucking piece that could possibly merge because what I knew was if you couldn't smoke the product correctly, you wouldn't be able to enjoy it. And I got to smoke some some uh, 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 what was that called? Paris OG from Beazel. So Beazel did a Paris that won the Emerald Cup, right? And I, I hit Beazel up and said, I want to buy your shit. And so it was Beazel's shit. And then it was a cat named Dave. And Dave was was Mandel's like lead breeder. So Dave doesn't get any fucking credit, but Dave was a razor sharp dude. And me and Dave had a great relationship. And Dave was fucking way ahead of the game when it came to blowing BHO, man. That Like he was, there was only a few people at that time that were at that level. And so I had the oil coming in from Dave and I had the oil coming in from Beazel. Is this, and- Kev, is this the inception of the Humboldt oil cartel? Yes. Okay. That's the beginning of that whole time period. And so the county had no idea what I was about to do. And so I turned Wonderland into a clone facility and it was just, uh, and as soon as we blew it up, man, it freaked everybody out because no one expected us to hit as hard as we did. And I mean, the day we opened the door, we were starting, we made money. I mean, I, I, I took the business on and we were sitting in the parking lot and people start, to this day, the fucking company's been closed for four fucking years at that location. And we're, we're, re, we're remodeling the facility to do another type of operation. To this day, people still pull in the parking lot looking for fucking clones. I'm telling you, I put a sign up on the street. It cost me like 11 bucks. And cars would almost get into fucking accidents to fucking come around the corner and shit. So, no, we grassrooted this whole thing. Every, every step of the way was just an identification of who really needed the product. And what we were trying to do was get genes into the hands of people that had high velocity and movement. So, and so my was the Humboldt Oil Cartel just a placeholder as a needed brand for these yes. individuals who didn't want their brand associated? Exactly. They didn't have brands, Jameson. No one had a brand at the time. We were the ones that were really pushing it. So I was like, I think we're the first ones to ever like go into a newspaper with like an Ace Hardware flyer, being a flyer, full-blown fucking flyers. I was laying out planting campaigns. I'm giving you fucking... Uh, spot prices <laughs> like we were pushing the boundary of what was possible so hard but I had a phenomenal legal team I had an attorney that kind of was like my dad in some way where you know I, I I meet him when I'm in my 30s you know for criminal shit but we ended up developing this beautiful relationship because well I was doing criminal shit for a long time and so he was my attorney all those years I was doing crooked shit and then I referred everybody I fucking knew to him because he was a ferocious attorney. And so we have this really healthy relationship. And when I when I go into Wonderland, I asked him, would you be my like advisor? You know, could I could I bring you in as my advisor? I know you're my criminal attorney, but this is all business related stuff. But I'm like, can I can I just keep you on retainer like I have all these years? And so what I did is I had a brilliant attorney and it allowed me to be able to strategize on how to play this game 
in a manner that re reduced your exposure. And so by being, by being intelligent in how you protect yourself, I, I told you the story before, right? Where I was talking to a reporter and she was like, Kev, she goes, I was talking to a team of lawyers yesterday and your name came up. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah, they have an interesting nickname for you. And I said, what's that? They said, they call you the fucking porcupine. And I said, why is that? And they said, because the, the, the lead defense attorney said, because there's never been anybody in Humble County history that's defended himself better than this fucking guy. They said, no matter where you come at him, all you do is get a mouthful of fucking quills. <laughs> Is fucking I didn't hear that one. That's yeah, no, because awesome. yeah, so like the, the defense attorneys in Humboldt called me the porcupine for years because what I had done was I had and I and I and I knew this from I had a a, a woman that was a, a, a high-ranked social official, you know, like she social credit was fucking powerful. She she spoke for the wealthy. And so she and this other lady, older woman, come and meet me at my shop and they said, Hey, we want to um, have a meeting with all these wealthy socialites in you and i said why and they said because you're the first person that ever fucking spoke publicly about cannabis that made sense and what we realize is that you see this picture differently and that you're changing the world around you in a way that's so dramatic we want to be able to have you help us understand how it's going to impact us and so i was able to help the the wealthy of humboldt understand the cannabis industry in a way they really never had and to also help them understand how to make money from it in the same way we are. Where, where's the benefit? How do we all work together to drive more revenue into the area? And so when you have the people that are wealthy, that aren't uh, intimidated by you, all the medical people I was fucking supporting, like literally, you know what I mean? So it's, it's hard to hate me when I'm giving you, your, your wife's dying and every drop of medicine she consumes, I subsidize. And we never made anybody ever get up and talk about it. Like it was, it was the honest human element. So like with medical cannabis, it couldn't have been any more honest. And then with the political shit, the politicians, they kind of fear you when you have a reach. And so when you can, you know, I, like if, if there was problems, just like with 215 stuff, right? So when, when medical cannabis is being converted into the new world, I went on a fucking war, war path to make sure that medical rights were fucking held in, in Humble County so that no matter what took place with legalization, we still had clear medical protections for people who had medical need so that they weren't forced to comply with the fucking state six or whatever was going to come up. And when you, you have a, a, an agenda to drive a fucking protection to a group of people, whenever you need help, I could just go down to the radio station and hop on the radio because I, I did radio for a couple of years, right? I could go hop on the radio and then I would have buses brought to the supermarkets at different locations and that I would fund. And we would pick up all the people that were medical and bring them down. And what worked was that it was all going to be, you know, through the dispensaries. We were going to control it all. And so for someone who owns a dispensary or runs operations and is fighting for the ability for people to not fucking have to buy from you, it's pretty clear. So you can't deny, I'm like, it, it wasn't, it, the medical shit was, the medical shit cost me a fucking fortune and took fucking years off my life, I think, really, because the struggle was so fucking profoundly painful at times. But when you when you have that kind of support at the medical level and you show up at the political meetings and you have, you know, 200 fucking people showing up with you, 
it's kryptonite to politicians. They're terrified of that shit. And so what, what it does is it changes how everybody behaves. Nobody gets bullying in public when you got people on tape in wheelchairs. They're very cautious. Yeah. And when you're fighting for them in the way we were, it was just genuine. So, you know, you got the medical locked up. The criminals were still about it because I never turned my back on the fucking game. I said, listen, this is how you use medical cannabis to fucking function. And then we were laying out you know, sources of distribution all over the state through all the other store networks and stuff. So when you're making money or giving medical support or, or just emotional support to everybody around you, nobody wants to fuck you. And so what it does, it allows you to exist in this weird sphere where you can really operate as long as you're intelligent about what you do. And I never really double dipped. I didn't, you know, I, I kept it really legit. So that I never feared them coming. Because that's what I tell them all the time. I said, you got a question? Come over to my fucking house right now. Matter of fact, here, let's drive over today. And because that's what you'd hear it out of their mouth all the time. I bet you have your fucking house sparked up. And I said, how about we hop in the car and drive over there? And then you can, we get a fucking reporter to talk about it. Then you can fucking apologize on tape. And then, oh, I don't want to say exactly. And so the thing is that when you, when you can fucking flex on people that like to flex, most of the time, to me, most people that flex are bullies. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to see the ability for Humboldt. So, I mean, like, you know, you get into a situation and all of a sudden you can do all this social justice and it's this incredible feeling. But when you look back at it, you're like, I'm glad I did it. But holy fuck, man, I should have kept that money. <laughs> but I still. Well, that's I, the thing I wanted. To, that's I the thing that again. I want. But again, <laughs> you see you know, I, I want to ask you, you know, out of all those people that, you know, you more or less paid it forward to, how many actually came back and, and were, <laughs> were, you know, treated you to a standard that you think is fair to, you know, the, the favors that you did or the, the, you know, the help that you offered? Well, you know, the truth, Jameson, is that when they came in to talk to me, what I let them know was that they didn't owe me anything at all. Yeah. That that the truth of it is, is that the only way that you can do this kind of stuff, the only way you can get people that are like, you remember you're, you're I'm dealing with people that are fucking dying, right? So yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting the, I'm getting you on your fucking last edge of the rope. Yeah. And so we can be really honest because you're fucking dying and I'm not pretending to be a doctor or a healer. And so I'm just like, look, only thing I can do is be cool to you. And yeah. you don't owe me anything. I said, this is my choice to help you. And the reality of it is, is that, the only reason why this shit's even in business is because you're here. Like I said, you got to remember my whole, my whole history is not giving a fuck about law enforcement's fucking point of view. Right. But in this building, there's the only reason why I can, I can have this freedom is because we're supposed to be serving medical people. And it was this moment where for so many of them, they're like, well, why, why only you? And I'm like, well, that's a good question. You need to go ask the other dispensaries. Yeah. I mean, I swear to God, we were doing more charity work than fucking Harborside was. It, you know, like it, it, it was just this reality that people were in desperate need. And I just think that, you know, if you're not there just to get paid on sick people, it impacts you in a way that changes you. And so I think the 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 thing that like touched me the most was the letters I would get from people who had died 
and they would pass the lead. They would write before they died, they'd write the letter and give it to their family. And then the family would come in and they'd say, Hey, you know, Steven passed away, Judy passed away. And here's a letter. And you read a letter from someone that's fucking dead. And they took the time in that last moment of their life to just say, thank you for being kind to me. Thank you for, for being my friend. Yeah. And it's so, it's so fucking real. Yeah. You know, that, 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 I don't need any thanks. The, the, the fact was that the medical cannabis, I just realized that we needed that to happen. We needed people to be able to see dispensaries in a way that wasn't abusive. We needed the ability to get people to come in and be able to get the genes they needed to grow their own product. They needed understanding on how to grow the product. They needed friends to be able to socialize with. And so we created all these programs and all these opportunities so that when we were looking at the people, we could look at them in the eye and there's a genuine connection that you just can't fucking fake, you know? And as I look back at it now, I still don't have the regrets. I have, you know, sometimes you're, 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 you're working too fucking hard to fix the ills of the world. But if I had to go back and do it again, I'd probably do the same exact thing because how do you, how do you know who to say no to? You know, you got people coming in your office and they'll, and they look good. And they sit down and they're like, could I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, I don't even know why I'm here. I, I don't know who to talk to. I just got diagnosed with fucking so like stage four fucking lung cancer. They don't think I'm going to make it a month. And, 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 I, and I don't know who to talk to. I, I, I don't even know how to tell my wife. I don't know how to tell my kid. I mean, this shit was all the time. Wow. And so I, I, I'm like, you know, and I, I just didn't know how to turn him down. Yeah. You know, I really didn't. And I just, uh, I just think that most people in the situation would really behave well. It's just that, you know, it's like now with cannabis, everybody sees it as, you know, get rich quick. And so when you're just chasing the chips, you kind of don't catch the, the implications of what it is that this drug does and who uses it. And for the group that's needy in that regard, you know, you, you, I mean, I had people coming in that were fucking like, just, they, they were dying. They changed the regulations. Cops are busting people and people are fucking dying, being busted. And they're coming in to me trying to say, Hey, could I work for free to maybe get a discount on some clones or something? And we're just like, Oh, this is unfucking real. And we would just provide everything to you. We had people coming in that was so fucked up that they couldn't afford. I buy your lights, buy your tables, buy your tent, put your fucking plants in and, and run that shit. Yeah. And wow. when you get to see those people, you know, years and years later and they see you in public and they come up and hug you and say, thank you, I'm still alive. And it's, it's emotional because, you know, you, you were just trying to be a good person. And for me, it was, it was the fact that I couldn't believe I was in, a, in, in an industry that was based off of this medical idea and fucking nobody was following it. It tripped me out, man. It blew my mind that, that like the only people I knew that were cool were all of us fucking criminals. We all got together and created our own support systems. That's why I love Dennis Perone. So, you know, Perone was a fucking criminal who recognized that the people in his community um, did better with cannabis and did not do better without it. And so he created that entire network in the, in the Castro so that what you'd have is an AIDS community that was being completely fucking neglected at the time. 
have some internal support. And so he was one of the only ones I really respected. And then, you know, at the end of his life, they have a, a, a get together where you had to be in the hustle like 30 years minimum to be in the fucking room. And so it was a whole room full of us career criminals all hanging out with Dennis before he died. And it was Dennis and the whole the whole San Fran crew that put together 215, the architects of it, the executors of it. And it was just an honor to be in that space that day because they had, they, I kind of was, you know, channeling that flow of we all want to get paid, but you can't deny the fact that there's people who are struggling beyond comprehension and Herb doesn't have to be charged to them. We can, we can be cool. So it, it created a, a, a really healthy situation, but what it did was it gave me a, a, a really weird set of fucking friends where I had the medical community that I was supporting, the criminals were still about me. I had the, the fucking pol the political groups were nervous around me because I had so much fucking push and I had so much media coverage that that scares people when you can fucking, when you're, I'm in every newspaper in America. So many times that I can't keep track, I threw it all away. I had to hire somebody to go and dig all this shit up because there's so much material that I created over these 15 years. It makes people nervous. And so I used all of it to really kind of drive the agenda of a better humble because I wanted, and it was selfish. I wanted to live in Humboldt my whole life and I wanted to see Humboldt be able to maintain some of the unique nature of it that cannabis provided. It brought in the most neglected group of people, extremely diverse, every every race, every color, every sexuality, every money level, everybody's here. And it made it like awesome to be in a place that was so diverse. And so, I wanted to continue. So at what point did you get involved with the one log, Kev? Well, the one log shit, we just got together the first night, right? Me, me and my partners haven't bumped into each other in fucking one room in like a year and a half. So... Um, what year would that have been? That would have been like 16, 2016, 2017, we meet. And, and for, the the for the people listening, can you describe what the one log is? Because it's, it's quite a cool place. Oh, the one, yeah, well, the one log right now is the Cookies R&D facility, right? And so, um, and you know who's running the, the jeans now is Bodie. Where's the one log facility? Up in Humboldt County. Okay. So it's the cookies R&D facility. So what it is, is it's um, dispensary. Is this how you got involved with cookies too? No, no, no. It's, it, it's, it, it's, 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 my cookie shit goes be a little before the one log. Okay. It was in this, it was peace. So um, there's no cookie relationship. It's just, it's just me and the team that, that they own the one log site. And they approached me to do a, a dispensary because I already had a dispensary and a, a, a nursery. And so they were building a nursery and they were, and they wanted me to come in and, and, and anchor a dispensary at that location. And I said, great. Except the funny thing was when they came in and talked to me about it, they weren't clear about like the, my partner Pete wasn't clear with what he was saying. And to me, I mean, we, we all buddies now, but on that day when they came in the office, it sounded like he was telling me, we're going to put a nursery together and compete with you. And at the time, everybody, you know, legalization is fucking coming. And when you become well-known, you become a target. Everybody, you know, targets you as their goal. Like, I'm going to be better than you. And I always tell them the same thing. I'm like, you need to set your fucking sights a little higher because I'm not looking at any of you motherfuckers. I'm telling you that right now. 
And but it was constant, right? So every other time you turn it around, it's it's you know we're going to do a better job than you. And 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 people didn't realize that our struggles, a lot of them, were based off the fact that we were limited on what we could do in the facility, so we couldn't just fucking build it out. And now everybody's in legal cannabis, and I'm like, oh, little smart motherfucker, tell me about how you're fucking doing what you want. And they're like, I can't. The regulations are hard. And I say, hey, welcome to the fucking world. I was living in that shit for the last fucking decade. And so it's this, it's this real fucking fight of this, the truth. Well, they say to me, you know, we're going to build a nursery. Well, I fucking come out of my chair and says, I'm going to fucking bury you motherfuckers. Because I thought he was telling me that, we're, we're, I thought, because like everybody else, they would come in and just tell me how they were going to take me out. And, and normally I'd laugh, but on that day, I wasn't, in, I wasn't fucking feeling it. And so I'm fucking yelling at my future business partner, I'm going to bury you motherfuckers. And, and they look, everybody's in horror in the room, right? And then someone goes, oh, no, Kev, um, they, they want to know if you want to partner and do a dispensary at their facility. And I said, oh, I'm solid. Let's go. And, and everyone's like, this fucking guy's insane, right? And so we all get together and we take a look at the project. And I realized that, you know, if we just partnered as nursery operators and um, dispensary operators, it would work really good. And so the team, the team had a relationship. Uh, one of the one of the guys had a relationship with Jigga, and Jigga knew who I was. And so fucking Jigga gets uh, Mercedes bussed up to Humboldt, and we spent like three or four hours just chilling, me and him, with the team, talking about you know could we work together down the road in some capacity, and. Uh, he was about it, and I was about it because I said, "Hey, we, this would be a really positive thing." Well, because I understood that you need to use these these forward front businesses to drive product into the system. That you can work collaboratively. It's, this is not either us or you. It it can be both, you know. And so, we end up uh, tying in and taking on some of the the cookie stuff. And then little by little, the facility just started to emerge. So, like, you know, Bodie took the position as head geneticist for cookies. And so Bodie's, so Bodie, and the same thing, he's going to have to go through the whole fucking roar, too, of how dare you sell out your, you, you sold out. Well, the thing is, is he couldn't get a license in Santa Cruz, right? Because the licenses in Santa Cruz are so fucked up. So you got somebody who's somebody I respect the fuck out of as a breeder. And he, I think he couldn't be a nicer guy either too. Yeah. Like, you know, if, as a human being, the fucking guy is operating on another vibration. Yeah. And, but you, he, he, he represents the industry to me, ideally where people that are brilliant, that are good, can't get a fucking license. And so in order to continue your craft, you have to fucking join a group. And so the ability to have Bodhi come in and steer the direction of cookies is fantastic for both cookies and Bodhi because Bodhi now has the ability to have a, a legal facility to run. And then cookies has somebody who's a genetic freak. But what we have at the one log is we got the, the dispensary. We got the smoke lounge outside, but we never opened it up due to COVID shit. We just used the back acreage. So we so we have a, a, a we have a license on a lounge. We have uh, the storefront. We have the genetic bank down below that holds all the genes. Conception does all the propagation. The TC facility out of SAC. So TC is how the clones are delivered now. But we bank and hold the genes below. Then they get taken over and then propagated for commercial distribution through the farmers. There's, I think, seven different breeding boxes. So we have seven Connex boxes set up, fully set up for uh, a R&D hunt. We have an outdoor R&D. We have a mixed light R&D. 
We have uh, the, the distro and manufacturing. So 80% of all cookie products in California get packaged at our facility. So the one log is, is unique in that it's really one of the only true from gene to sale locations. And it's just, it's an awesome evolution to be part of just because it's so cool to be able to be, be doing R&D. So it was just this evolution of time. And my partners that I tied in with are, are just sharp young guys. I mean, you know, compared to me, they're young, they're mid thirties, but sharp and, and on point. And they wanted to drive forward too. And we ended up putting together an operation that worked and it allows us to be able to do some really interesting stuff because Humboldt has all these killer farmers, just like Mendo and Trinity, but they don't have the ability to get shelf space. Cookies has an ability to create shelf space and what they want is premium flour. And so they were able to work with me to find farms that could produce product for cookies, but not on a white label. You get your vector on the bag. So your bag is your name on the bag on the cookie shelf, which is huge because you're getting the recognition. And then for like Jason and Mendo, they were able to get a clothing deal. So they were able to have their clothes sold through the cookie shops. So what you have is, you know, I think there's like 25 farms we tied in. And for a lot of these farms, I'd say almost fucking most of them, the cookies deal is the only group that actually paid them for their fucking flour. Most of these distros are collapsing daily. And so when I, and, and the, the irony of it, right, is like when we first put some of this shit together, I, I would have to help the farmers because so many people would attack them for selling out. And I'm like, when you fucking grow weed, that is the point. The point is the sell out of your weed. You're trying to sell your fucking weed. Holding it in your house, keeping it real, isn't fucking real. And what happened was now we have people that are fucking chomping on the bit to come play. But it was the same thing when we did the video where when we did the marijuana mania video, we were all hanging out, me and, and the, the the cookies team, and we're talking yeah. about Bruno wanted to relight up marijuana mania. Yeah. He was he was trying to get it put into like a streamer like Netflix or something like that, but they they were too controlling and he just said, Fuck it, I don't I'll just go back to YouTube and we'll just do it again. So we're all sitting down and he's like, Hey, uh the the, the director team is like, Hey Kev, um, you got any ideas on what to do? And I said, Oh, I fucking know what to do. Let's cover the appellation, the beginning of Humboldt and Mendo. And I said, and I'll cover the technical part. And I said, we'll find some farmers to bring in to showcase farm and I'll help write the copy for all the press release so that everything's uh, uh, technically correct. So that what it does, it allows us not that because, you know, in cannabis right now, God help you make any mistake. Everybody fucking crucifies you. Right. So we made sure the press release, everything laid out. Right. We brought out the piece. I asked 30 fucking farmers. I couldn't only I could only get two. Nobody wanted to be covered. They're, everybody said the same thing. I got my own media shit going. I got my own fucking plan. And I'm like, okay, well, this isn't bad. You're not paying for it. They're covering it. It's good marketing. Like, it's okay. If you think that being involved in this is going to damage your brand, then I understand. But I would rethink it. Well, fucking nine million views later, um, 
people fucking rethink it. And I'm laughing because I was like, I had to basically beg motherfuckers to get in it. And then I had to defend them because everybody was attacking them. So I'd have to get into your personal shit and fucking fight it out with people just so that they could understand them because everybody's calling them sellouts. And I'm like, well, you're not buying their fucking weed. So maybe you go buy their weed, then you can have a comment. But unless you're buying all their grass, what would you like them to do with this product? Eat it. Yeah. And so that's really what it came down to. But the relationship is solid. And for me, you know, I've only hung out with Burner a few times and and we speak on the phone occasionally, but I, he couldn't be a fucking more normal guy. Yeah. So if you're if you're with him in your car or you're sitting down burning a joint with him, he's a fucking normal good guy. And I, so I don't have any issue with him as a person. And the fact that he was a trafficker is all, you know, prior and a hustler. I'm like, it's, that's that's a fucking dream. Yeah, those are bonus. But it I, created a huge fucking dissension for a while, and it still does. I still I still get people fucking hitting me up about how I sold out in my relationship. And I'm like, look, in life, when you get opportunities to work with larger companies that are positive, and it's a positive relationship, and the shit you're going to do is good, don't let the public fucking change that view. It's, it's kind of like letting the public pick your girlfriend. You know, they oh, they... Oh, we'll be happy if you're with her. Well, that's nice. You're not the one I'm fucking having to deal with. I'm, I'm dealing with the person direct. So I, I want to circle back to Philo's, Kev, and I know the people in the comments would be remiss if I Oh, did. yeah, yeah, no, Philo's shit was off the hook. Let's, you know, let's... go back, because we, we, we lost track. So I yeah. meet him when they're in a, in, a, in a small laboratory, and we all get together to talk about the idea of genomics. So my mom, my mom was a fucking research geneticist, right? So that was my mom's background before she got into doing hazardous wastewater treatment and shit through the electroplating industry. So my mom's a fucking brilliant, multifaceted scientist. So I was raised in a house doing fucking fruit fly breeding and shit in the kitchen. So I understand what happens when you can fucking mark a chromosome and identify a trait. And I knew at some point in time that we would get into that world and we would need it when we got into the Appalachian end because what we need is genetics that aren't shared. They're licensed and they're improved where you've gone through and identified this one has not the PM gene. This one has the resistance to aphid. The shit you need to be a fucking farmer, right? So I knew it was needed. So when I sat down with them and talked and said, listen, I said, you guys are all going to be doing, you know, genomic research and development. And I says, and what I'm going to need is I'm going to need access to this in 10 years. Because in 10 years, we're going to have to be able to have uh, unique products for small farms because there's no way I can produce a Gelato 33 and fucking compete with someone doing 80 fucking acres of it. They're going to get me on price. So what I have to do is not have a Gelato 33. I have to have something that's unique, that's phenomenal, that you can only get from me. And we're going to need to have genomic teams to help refine the picture and the process. So I talked to him, and and I met Mowgli, and I met Nishan and Ralph. And Nishan and Ralph, uh, the, the founders, I'm, I still have a beautiful relationship with them because Nishan and Ralph, to me, were fucking great guys. And I don't have any beef with Mowgli. What took place with that that people don't catch, and I always liken it to, like, you went on a date, Right. And I said, if I could film you on a date and record the shit coming out of your fucking mouth and then play it back for everybody to hear. Because you would be putting on the best goddamn light you could. And so the thing was that 
when when Phylos originally got into doing all the genetic sequencing, they didn't have any plans to create their own facilities. They wanted to be able to be just the genomics end of it. They wanted to do the sequencing and they wanted to work with partners. They wanted you to be able to have your facility and you contract with them to do the genomic work at your facility. And the problem was that when we got into the projects as we went forward, what you found was that none of the facilities could operate on a professional level that you need to do science with. It can't be random, grow. And, and, and I know this personally because I was referring fucking groups to them to do the genomic work. And the failures were just killing us because the farms, the growers were not fucking professional. This idea that everybody's so professional, no, we're a bunch of fucking drug addicts that fuck up the money continuously until big money comes in and then it, you you make money again. I mean if you look at the at the people in the dope game, it's like a, it's like we're all kind of fuck ups to some degree that made so much cash that it covered up our fucking bad habits until you're in a room with people who don't make those habits. And so what happened is Philos realizes they're not going to be able to do the project they were going to do. And what they have to do is they got to go raise money to go get facilities to do the in-house development that they did not want to do. And so when Moogs gets up there and pitches that deck and says, you know, cannabis breeders can't breed and we have this massive database, everyone's like, you stole my shit. And then they're yelling at me about how they stole their shit. And I'm like, I'm the one that gave you the fucking plant. So like, who, who are they stealing it from? And what they didn't realize was like, for me, I had probably, I had the largest collection of plants in the galaxy. That's all open data. So what it does, it just says that there's a prior history of that plant being in existence, which means nobody can patent the fucking thing. Nobody can take the fucking OG cut. So I put every OG cut into it. I put everything that was valuable into an open system. I didn't protect it. I put it out on purpose so that what you had is all prior art anybody could use. It, it just it set the fucking bar. It was clear. And so... What I know is you need a genomics company to do the work you're going to do. If you're trying to develop shit at a high level, you need to go farther than my, me and my fucking tent. And the tent doesn't do it. And the tent is great to go chase some shit, but long-term projects require this. And when, when, they, when they filmed him talking about, you know, we got the data and breeders can't breed, it created a shit storm. And what it did is it created a, a, a shitstorm in a couple of ways, though, where they became villains because they were saying to people, you're not qualified. And it scared a lot of people because they realized that people with money and, and skills were in the room. And when you get so offended, when someone says you're not a breeder and you get that offended, it means you're not. Because to me, define breeder, replicatable fucking results. Pheno hunter ain't breeding. Breeding is fucking breeding. And when you're not breeding, you're not fucking breeding. You're replicating, right? And you're replicating and hunting. And so there's really only a handful of breeders in cannabis that can absolutely put together a consistent fucking package. And every time they put it together, it comes out 80% is pretty fucking similar. That's on one hand, you can count that number in the fucking industry. So it offended everybody. And then everybody started jumping off of the Phylos wagon because it became uh, too intense. Everybody started like backing away from them. But the minute anybody backed away, they got attacked anyways, right? And so what, what made me really fucking love Ralph and Nishan more than anything was they said to me, they said, Kev, they go, this shit's just out of control. And I said, and people are fucking going after you. 
and you're not, you didn't do anything wrong. And so what we're going to tell you as friends is if you want to fucking throw us under the bus, we're cool. Like, it's okay. Like, we won't be mad at you. And I said, that's why I love Yas, though, because I know who you are as people. So Ralph and Nishana, I said, you guys are my fucking friends' friends. And I said, and the way I work is I don't ever abandon my friend. Where, like, if I know who you are as a person and I see you in real life and I know you're not trying to fuck anybody over, I know you're a decent guy, I'm with you. And I said, and if the public wants to fucking go at it, let them go at it. I don't give a fuck at this point. I said, I've got cats challenging me left and right. They're not fucking qualified to even speak to me. So I'm not really worried about it. And I said, and the bottom line is you give it a couple, two, three years when this industry gets real, which I've been telling people, pay attention. These motherfuckers are coming. Um, everybody that's throwing rocks are going to be fucking throwing rocks on the driveway because now they're sweeping fucking stone and shit. They're not going to even be in the industry anymore. And so what you see now is genomic companies blowing up all over the world in the same exact situation, but there's no one left to scream and yell because everybody got wiped out. And so now it's just business. My, my concern is, or not my concern, but the other side of the coin playing devil's advocate is that when we look at the example of the fruit and vegetable industry mm -hmm. and we go, we... Un, like unarguably can say that there are less varietals of fruit today than there were. Oh, guaranteed. Has to, has to, because of globalization and transport. But yeah. if you also look at it, though, available in the market, less, but how many people are doing their own work in, in preservation for their own stuff, the heirloom? Because I know I have four heirloom varieties in my yard right now that aren't commercial. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... It's 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 about the fact that you're you're not in the industry you were in. You're in the industry that you're in right now. Yeah. And what people have to be able to be aware of is that you're going to compete with these people at some point. These companies are going to come in. Just like when I had, like I said, I had the discussion with Syngenta when when they said when we show up, you will fucking know we're here. And because who el who else has a million dollars a day budget on R and D? So when you can blow a million a day on R and D. Now you're at a level that's scary to me, right? And so what you have is you have the industry that's commercial cannabis, which is what we have. And then you have what I've always been trying to cultivate, which is the home industry of people grow their own shit. And you, you, you live in that world of sharing genes and collaborative information and cannabis culturalism. So I separate them because I knew we're not in that world anymore. The minute... When, when I did the economic index for Humboldt and came up with half a billion dollars, right? That's how I got the fucking state to come talk to me. That's how I got every fucking tax head, the governor, all these people. They were like, how the fuck did you come up with that number? Because it's quantifiable and it's never been done before. So all of a sudden, you know, you get everybody and their brother coming to speak to you because you're, you're able to crack a code that no one else has cracked. And they're telling you that really it's $8 billion a year. And I'm like, oh, my God. Once you realize the full value of the industry you're in, you realize your your dreams of control and, and autonomy are going to be fucking short-lived because it's too big a picture. It's too much money. And so we can scream and yell all we want, but I'm like, and you're making a car? You got a car at your house? Or, or is there only like six car companies? You're making fucking washing machines and dryers? Because I don't see that's fucking, that's about like six, seven companies too. So once you get to a certain point, it's economy of scale. And what I knew was that, you know, if we could create a situation where we had relationships with companies that could be of service 
and then they get paid in licensing. And so for me, you know, if I can license, a, say, a high THCV gene, right? So say we're pushing some crazy fucking numbers through the lab, I can license that material, and then money gets kicked off the end sale. It allows me to have product that is rare in the system so I can sell my product, and it allows tech companies to be able to make money on the work that they did. And so I don't have any issue with that shit, and I, and I won't. And it's just that, you know, the Philo stuff went nuts, and it became like a buzzword for, you know, they're trying to steal all our shit. But it, wasn't, it was like, it's like fucking Facebook. It's like people on Facebook putting that stupid little thing up saying, I don't give you the right to use my shit. I'm like, you fucking idiot. You sign the contract when you join the fucking the, the page. You can't get around it. It's just what it is. And the bottom line is your data is so important, but you don't know how to fucking use the data. It's just data. They're not giving the gene up. You're giving data up and the ability to be able to see data, look at data. It doesn't do what people think it does. It, it gives you a reference base. It's a lot more complicated. Like when you're starting to get like, remember, you know, this is the first time people have mapped cannabis. And so you're, it's taken time to unfold and look at all these things. But to yeah. me, it's always down the road. Yeah, I think that there's two industries, one much smaller than the other that exists within cannabis. And, and one is the very commercialized industry and the other is the, the, the absolute craft premium quality that a lot of us who are consuming content like this mm -hmm. um, exists within. And I think that the eventual genomic research that's going to be undertaken and developed is going to massively affect the commercial side but just more clearly define, you know, this is a, a lab designed genetic that was made to produce high THC, no terpenes, grown outside, PM resistant. Um, that but is good. But Trudeau, it's not, that's, we just did, we just spent the last three and a half years working on the first real F1 seed releases. They're not fucking terpene deficient. True. What you're, you're like, you're like, just be aware that it's science takes a minute, but it took us three and a half years to get to this release. And so what I spent the last three and a half years doing is steering a breeding project so we can get better quality products. So what's the result of a breeding project where you go from 40 to 60% a quality flower on the same product just by changing the morphological shape of the plant and how the light gets into the interior. It's about developing plants that have higher resin retention so that they hold better in the back opposite of a hash cut. It's about developing plants that have a more consistent flower shape and size so that what you have is an easier breakdown and more A quality product. It's, it's, it's what you've had prior in cannabis sciences, you've had cannabis scientists trying to work on cannabis. What we were able to do here was, I, th that's why I got brought into this shit is, I'm telling you what I need as a cannabis farmer. And what I need is the ability to have better products and it doesn't mean that it shuts out small breeders. It, it doesn't because what you have is it's kind of like with propagation. Tissue culture is like 11-month, 12-month rollout period where it takes you so many months just to get the fucking thing to get into culture. And then once you've figured out the culture, now you can do the scrub. And once you've done the scrub, now you can do the propagation, right? But 
that's a long lead time. And so just like genomics, it took us three and a half years to release these first releases because it took so long to develop the true F1s, to be able to actually stabilize the lines and then put them together and then get the results out we wanted. And so- Where is that space, Kev? Where is that space for the small breeder in the future? The space for the small breeder in the future is in being able to be aware that as trends change, you can shift in quickly. And so that the small breeder is still going to be a hunter and large breeders will be by seed, but small breeders will be hunters where you're able to say, wait a minute, we like, what's a good example? We just noticed like in California, you take a look at your numbers and you're saying, Hey, 51% of the people fucking around the dispensary want limonene or, or lemon, you know, toned cannabis, right? Well, as soon as you realize that it's shifted into such a high disproportionate number, well, what, what do we do? We go fucking right into that range right now, looking for things that satisfy the demand of the people. It'll take two years, two years easy for a genomics company to build the seed varieties that replicate it. But the small individual can always pivot right now to look for the outlier plant to satisfy the need. It's just that you're not going to be able to release just kind of like right now, there's almost no reg seeds being sold. So if you're if you're really looking at seed sales, the reg seeds are going. Nobody wants to fucking sift out males. Nobody's trying to really do breeding in that way. And so the breeders that are doing conventional breeding, they're like, what the fuck? And so they're having to shift into all fem lines, and which is fine too. But you can see these changes. And so what you have is you have nurseries the same way, where as long as we have a plant that doesn't test hot for hop latent then what you have is the ability to get it into the market right now and utilize it and then get it into culture so you can hold it so that you have a clean copy to back up in case it does get dirty. But to get that into a TC operation and being fed through TC clone is a year. We can do a conventional in two months. If it takes me three years to do it, a, a really good agronomic project where I'm getting a consistency and profile and, and, and value all the the difference too is it's not just in the consistency it's that you're you're learning how to weave genes what you got is you got all this work that went into hemp so tremendous amount of r&d went into hemp through all these major companies because that's the global crop right well as you're starting to study this you're able to start to locate the vigor genes the v, the genes that give you explosive growth so what it does, it allows you to start develop seed stock where I can take the seed, pop the fucking seed into a rock wool cube, give it two weeks of total veg, and then light that fucking thing up and have an incredible plant that when you run it right next to the parental clone, demolishes it. It's, it's combining technologies so that what you have is an ability for, to be able to use seed crops in, in the farms. Right now, you got the, the, the game that everybody's in ends right fucking now because now the large licenses are coming into vogue. So when California had a five-year moratorium on canopy where they said, look, you can only have an acre, D'Angelo's group, and, 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 and fuck him and his whole fucking crew on that one, but they lobbied for stacked licenses. Right. And so the problem is, is that you take a state, no, there's no place like California in terms of total amount of cultivators cultivating. Right. And there's this opportunity to be able to actually develop an industry. 
And what you do is you get a couple lobbyists that come in, and I swear to God, it cost them like 300 grand. It wasn't even that expensive. And for 300,000, they're able to get in front of the governor and they sway the the canopy size. And so what it does, it allows you to stack mediums to an unlimited level. So you you have to go get, you know, if, you, if I wanted 50 acres, I'd have to have 50 separate licenses, which is expensive, but these companies could do it. And what it did is it, it, it demolished all the small cultivators in every area. So let, let me give you a good example of what that means. In Humboldt County, we used to have at least 30,000 grows from satellite. How many legal grows are operating in Humboldt right now? 250. How many fucking legal grows are in Trinity? Seven. Seven functioning licenses. Seven in the fucking county, right? So Humboldt had 30,000 from sky. You could see clearly. I figured there was probably closer to fucking 50,000. Half the population was sparked up. We got 250 farms right now that got licenses on them that are fucking able to exist with satellite. So that's got nothing to do with any company that's got to do with with your fucking government and regulatory shit right and so that's the facts and when i saw this taking place i was so happy that we were able to get some input into the california system to develop it and everything is is going to be okay we had five years to kind of get ourselves situated and then and then the harborside group just fucking buries us and now you're at the unlimited cap. And so what you have is this situation. And, and I and, and for me, I went over this like 25 fucking years ago, easy with, I had, a, I had an econ professor that was a buddy and he was a professional farmer from the Central Valley. And all we talked about was the industries in Central and Southern California that got wiped out from NAFTA and how they were going to take over the fucking industry. And my whole thing was I, I just didn't have the desire to operate at that level in terms of corporate. It's just not my personality type, right? And so I was like, I can't fucking do this, man. But I said, how about if I just focus on my own small canopy and I work hard on getting recognition and I do the best job I can, that will give me what I need as a farmer. And he was like, that would work. You would be able to be a niche farmer because you're not trying to compete at a level with these larger operators. So I knew that for me as a cannabis farmer, and we're talking like this is 19 fucking 97, right? So like I was clear the Central Valley. Like I, I, I've been really, really, really fucking far back for a long time looking forward. But what I wanted was I wanted the ability to have a small craft farm and I wanted to have it in this old school methodology because I believe that from my experience in Humboldt that the herb grown outdoor when done right is really special. And I wanted the ability to be part of that, that heritage. And I just figured that I would be able to like, you know, go into many different fields, many different directions and diversify so that it wasn't my farm canopy that defined me. It was my farm canopy allowed me to participate in something that I love and finish off my life in, in a manner that I was happy with because I was like, they're going to get us into sterility at some point. And I'm like having to go to work in a, in a, with a fucking beard net and a hair net and fucking rubber gloves and, and it's just dry, man. And, and I've been in, I've been in so many major operations and to me, they're just, it's, it's industrial fleet cannabis and it just doesn't, it's, yeah, it's huge and it's big, but I just don't get off on it. I like, I like the small craft canopy, 
but you're having to figure out how to work with it. And so, you know, for me, the, the ability to form relationships with, with entities globally that are big always gives me a better window into what's taking place. And it also lets you see what happens when you have a real craft quality stand next to commercial. We still have a place. It's just that they they did such a poor job rolling out regulation that, you know, I mean, look at Michigan. Michigan's yeah. going through it right now. Then they just they just stopped all the, the licenses in Oklahoma. They just they just froze the licenses there because that's out of control. So yeah. Oklahoma's ready to fucking crash and burn. Michigan's on fire. So I want to change gears a little bit and talk rewind a little bit and talk about a conversation I think you had in your kitchen with your eldest son, Nakona, in 2014 when he coined that term, Gangier, because that term not only resulted in a major project you're working on today, but I think it kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but did it inspire the, the Golden Tarp Awards or, or did the Golden Tarps come from that as well or no, not at all? No, that was, it was all about the same time. I came up with the tarp, the Gangier concept, Wonderland, Port Royal, all like in the same fucking moments. Like I was just having these creative explosions. But the conversation with my son was 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 heavy because it was a it was a name that wasn't derogatory. And it was from from someone who had been raised in cannabis. He had spent his whole life in weed, you know, where I mean he's still he's he's a, he's a fucking farm rep buyer for a distro now. So he's been working in herb his whole life and he's just been around it. And for him, he was just like, man, you know, you're a, and, and, and I was used the word ganja from the past. Right. And so he was like, man, you're a ganja. And it was the beginning of like a, a legitimacy in terms of title. And it just meant, you know, and, and for me, it was cannabis culturalist. It wasn't about uh, rank. It was just really about appreciation for weed. And we used it to create a really good platform to drive awareness. And we used it for the tarp. And we used it for uh, uh, the, all the spring events, all the seed events, all the stuff we were doing to get um, breeders and farmers together because there was such a disconnect between the groups that nobody had really ever got a chance to hang out. And so me and Pedro were on a fucking rampage to bring everybody together so that the relationships get, could get created and you didn't have to go through me. You could just contact a breeder direct. You know, we were the largest seed sales in California, man. Nobody sold more fucking seeds than we did for the years we were running that spot. We were blowing fucking people up. But what we wanted was we wanted the people to be able to stay up and we wanted farmers and customers to get relationships with the breeders in a, in, and the providers. And so that what we had was some ability to start to fight the the consolidation. See, I knew that when all this stuff was going down, Jameson, I was aware that there was no way you were going to fight the money. And I, I, I'd already seen a couple million square foot fucking greenhouse operations running other crops. I did all my research. I was crystal clear aware of what we were going to go up against. And I was fully aware of the people that were coming in because when Prop 19 came in, Prop 19 was the first of these legalization props. When Prop 19 came in, every weasel in the earth came forward. And when it failed, they all slithered back into the darkness. But it let me see what was going to go down. And what you what you want to be able to do is fight it any way you can so that what you have is you have some idea of diversity so that the customer, the user of the product, 
has an awareness of that there's there's more than five choices and that in a lot of cases buying from your neighbor is the best thing you can do you're going to get the choice you want you're going to get it fresh and as long as they're not spraying it it should be clean and it's cheaper and so there's the there's the two worlds of weed that we really live in the one that was the one we were in which is uh producer sells to customer and there's the one we're in now where you're very disconnected from the end and so the ability to be able to figure out how to maneuver and so i knew that i wasn't going to be able to compete with any of these people financially and i knew that i didn't have a background in finance or in investment so i i didn't go to college for it so i didn't have the relationship with all the people that i was meeting who all went to college together everybody was in investment groups and so i i get to be around so many diverse groups that i started to see these patterns of the connections that were going to really build cannabis and when i was in berlin and i was in the bus with all the brokers that were about to start creating the world of weed we're in today I, I said to him, I said, why are you in weed? And they're like, oh, because the rest of finance is savage where herbs going to be a fucking golden day for us. We're going to come in here and tear this apart. And they had, and then I said, well, what do you do after that? They said, we go to whatever industry we go to next. That's what we do is we yeah, build and we build and grow. And I said, oh, I got you. They don't take it personal. No. We take it personal because herbs are life. Yeah. And so what I knew was that I was going to compete with people that I had no ability to compete with and so what I figured was that if I just did as much work as I could to drive awareness and create information and and relationships then what we'd have is we'd have a better way to compete down the road. Yeah. You'd have a more unified, you know, cluster of people that still existed. And when someone asked me, you know, what I thought the total population was going to be, I figured it was going to be like maybe 2% of the cultivators would survive. Yeah. And and that was not a popular fucking opinion at the time, man. I was a fucking heretic. And they were like, you know, you're hateful. And I'm like, no, I'm not hateful at all. I'm telling you right now, you are not prepared for what's coming. Yeah. They're going to come in here with investment, and they're going to come in here with fucking fiduciary responsibilities in a different way to themselves. They are not going to do what we did. And the trickle-down economy in cannabis is going to fucking end because of it. And so trickle-down economy you know rich people make money money tumbles from their pockets that only exists in weed it doesn't exist in the real life money doesn't tumble out of rich people's pockets they fucking hoard that shit well and and salute to them but nonetheless it doesn't work for us at our level where we have this intimate relationship with herb and so i knew we were going to get fucking smoked and so what i was trying to do was bring so much of this out into public saying look you got to make the relationships with companies that are there moving forward so that you can co-brand you need to be able to be somebody that when they interview you you giving them information that's valid you're not just talking about your own shit yeah. you're creating real fucking value and people had a hard time understanding what i was saying because it it i mean who the fuck am i you know why are you going to listen to me and each person that was looking at me was looking at me as if as if i was the target you know like if once you reach my level you're somebody and i'm like i'm a fucking nobody the 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 game is the game we're just players in it it's it's what i'm pointing to is what's going down it it's not about me and it 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 was such an emotional thing that people had such a a struggle trying to really get themselves into the reality that they waited so long that by the time it was there it's too late yeah
You know, you needed to start working on your brand 15 fucking years ago, not 15 seconds ago. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting aspects of the industry that there's a lot of interesting scenarios that are created in cannabis that aren't created in any other industry because you have any other industry wouldn't have such fully formed parts with such unformed other aspects of oh, the totally. industry. And well, the that money creates the difference between everything else. It's like, oh, well, like this industry is hundreds of years old and some of this stuff is concreted in and some of this stuff we haven't even tracked out yet how we're going to build the infrastructure. And no other industry have we really had that where, you know, the, the undercurrent of cannabis has grown year over year for the last 500 years and the, the knowledge and awareness of it has grown. And only in the last few years are we trying to license and regulate it and actually incorporate it into society. Oh, so. totally. It's, 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 it's never, it's unique in that form. And what you have too is you have also the fact that most of the people that get into cannabis, you know, prior to 208, 208's kind of me like, 208 changed cannabis more than 96 did. 96 brought in medical, but... 208 was when the economy crashed and everybody that had real estate just said, fuck it. I don't want to lose my shit. I'm sparking up. And that's when the prices fucking just got destroyed. They never recovered from that influx. It was the financial need. So once everybody in America decides they don't want to lose their home and grow an herb is okay, it changes. But you had this population of people that made incredible money that could be antisocial. They didn't have to do any kind of uh, social activity, really. They just had to produce a product and know one person that could fucking take it out. And because there was a shortage of product, B and A were pretty similar, right? So if, if you had B, you were still selling it. A went for a few bucks more, but B was still in that high price range. So what you got is you got an entire industry filled with underqualified fucking people that, that never got measured once in their fucking life in public. And now for the first time, they're ha that's what the, what the Golden Talk was originally about, was like people kind of, they got angry at me because that's kind of how we had the blowout with me and Fields. Me and Fields from, from third gen, because I, 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 I like Fields, and, I, and he's actually a fucking good rapper, right? So I like Fields. But we had a blowout over the Skittles entry that was going to go into the, into the tarp, got DQ'd because it had fucking mold on it. And he was furious that his entry wasn't going to get seen because no lab is qualified to judge my shit. And that that's the, well, kind of they are. And the bottom line is when we did that first tarp, what I did is I created a, it had never been done I, because there was no standardized fucking standards, right? So I took the standards from Oregon, Colorado. I took them from every fucking place that had standards and I combined all of them and said, listen, when we really get to legal, you're going to have microbial and you're going to have fucking uh, uh, other uh, adulterants and let's just categorize them and fucking cover all of them. And so what it did is it took that first population and cut it in half. Half the people failed right off the bat. And then the next year, only 2% failed. And what did it do? It, it allowed them to understand the product that you're going to enter into the legal system has to match this criteria. And that's what we were trying to do is get people to understand that a, a competition that doesn't test for this shit isn't real. 
that that you you got the greatest herb on earth and and i went through the emerald cup shit for years with that where like they would do the emerald cup testing after the fucking judging and then there was the year me and casey o'neill got really sick and the sample that we had fucking loved and smoked down on was so contaminated it gave us a fucking lung infection and so casey and i both gagging out fucking blood he's he goes and get an x-ray and it looks like he had a spider web in his fucking lung and so for me when i did the tarp I just said, listen, it's going to get tested first. The testing is the first criteria. If it's not suitable for consumption, it's fucking not suitable. And then we'll do the testing on do we like it or not. So it was really to help people prepare for the future. And because I was running the dispensary, it was the same thing with like oil. When we, when we did BHO, I knew all that dirty shit was coming in. And so what we figured was like, look. We're going to have a lab test the stock. I don't care. Like, no matter what, you you bring me your stuff. My lab tests it. If it comes out clean, we'll sell it. And if it doesn't, you can sit down with me and we can kind of go over, like, what did you do? And we'll help you figure out how to get around what you're doing. There's got to be a way to get more clean product into the system. And so instead of outing people, which is what's funny to me because – Motherfuckers love to out people, but I was the largest lab drop in Humboldt for years, right? So I saw more fucking COAs coming through my hands than anybody. I know all these organic fucking superstars, the superstars, the regen words and shit. I watched them try to figure out how to back Avid and Eagle out of their shit for years. Like, at what point do you have to stop using it? And so now all of a sudden, everyone's these, these organic fucking masters, right? And I'm cracking up. So I'm like, four years ago, you were spraying the fucking shit out of your stuff. And now you're over here letting everybody know that you're, you, know, you, you, you invented your master Cho himself. The fucking Korean guy got a hold of you for the info. So what I, what I hear is a lot of bullshit stories all the time, right? Everybody got some fucking tale of woe. And, uh, but what I know is that it was a process and, and it was just like, you know, I used fucking Avid 20 years ago. I used to have a blue hand from fucking using trace dye on injector fucking food, right? Well, once I started really looking at the pesticides from my mom's point of view, I had my mom kind of start to take a look at all the labels and she's just like, oh, all this shit is fucking a collector. She says, you are going to retain this crap for time. And so what I knew was I just started getting rid of it. And then, and now, after all these years, and it was, and it was a process because when you first start getting into organic IPM, my God, you look like a fucking idiot. But I don't have any issues on my fucking farm. I don't have any issues with my own shit. So you learn how to work with biological pest control, and you learn how to work with selection, and that's the process of refinement as a farmer. And and I never out the people that that you know that that scream i'm a fucking organic wizard but i'm like you were some of the dirtiest shit we've ever seen yeah like levels of fucking contaminants so high it was almost fucking red flag from the lab so it's this process and so what i know is that you 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 just have to always work towards a goal and you got to be honest you can't lie to your fucking self yeah you know absolutely absolutely and, and that's the that's the part that's tough. And so for me, I'm never claiming to be the best at anything. I'm just trying to be pretty fucking good. Yeah. I'm looking for a 92. I'm not even looking for a fucking 99. I'm looking for a 92 consistently because that gives me a 4-0 in everything I touch. Yeah. But if I go 99 on one thing, if so, like right now as an example, you do a 92 flower, a 99 flower, you get the same price as long as it's in the 90s. And the 99 effort is supernatural and it doesn't pay you any more money. 
And so you have to kind of be in this reality of how much effort to how much reward yeah. are you getting? Otherwise, you're you're gonna fucking die. If if it, if it was if it was Epicurean and people could appreciate it to the degree we're hoping they can over time, then these small craft batch operators and craft, you know, the some of the hash like to me the 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 trip to Michigan that we were at. What I got to see was a level of fucking hash there that was phenomenal. Yeah, like that was a fucking hasharama. Yeah, and small batch creative stuff. When I was in Maine, same thing. The people were doing their own micro tents, creating a product that was absolutely superlative. That shit should go for a higher price. Yeah, it's just that the market's so fucked up that it can't, and so you have to basically create it for yourself. Well, we're, 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 it's future people. We're like we're, we're, we're future people. We haven't yeah. educated a, a consumership that is large enough, and it's not. It's it's it is our responsibility, but it shouldn't be. And 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 any we have, other, yeah, we, because because we unfortunately we depend on the. It's the same thing with like we shouldn't have had to do a lot of the shit we do in cannabis. Yeah, but. We just, if you want it to work, you do. And, and I know that I want to see it work because I, I love what I do. And yeah. so I have a selfish interest. I want to stay in herb my whole life. I'm not trying to retire and go fucking do something differently. Yeah. It's, it's here that I want to finish my life. And so if I have to do a lot of this stuff, so be it. If, if we have to feed the system to get it to work, so be it. Yeah. But it, it, so we know we're fortunate that we have a platform and that we have a position that allows us to have a voice. And, and and like I said, people don't have to fucking like me. But if you argue with what I'm saying, you better you have to bring some fucking facts. Yeah. Right. You better bring you bring some fucking facts. Otherwise, it's just opinion. And I'm like, everybody's got one. But like, show me some data and, and then we'll be able to start to say, OK, this is why we do what we do. And so a well, lot I mean, of creating, creating connoisseurship. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's the gun's yeah, like that's what we're doing is creating connoisseurs, creating connoisseurship and then and then letting that grow out into the community. So, like, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got involved with Max Simon and, and the program that you've built and, and the work you're doing there. Oh, that was a cool one, man. Like I got actually I got turned on to Max through Samantha Miller. They were doing like a TED talk down in, in uh, L.A., and it was fascinating because it was the first time I'd ever um, been on stage where they had a makeup crew. And so they had the the makeup team from Glee, right? And so we all show up. Everybody's like, you nobody gave, wants You gave a TED Talk, Kev? No, it was it was it was like a TED Talk. It was it was like I, Max and talk like Yeah, it was the beginning of Green Flowers development. And they were putting together oh, okay. these conversations, but they were extremely well produced. And they would, they would, the, the the makeup company tripped me out because it was the first time I ever had fucking makeup put on, you know. And it was funny because they gave me a fucking great tan. And when the show was over, I said, "Oh no, keep that shit." I said, "My hands and my face are fucking brown, baby." I'm I'm staying brown all night. And it was it was just kind of cool to, to to you know work in his professional platform. And Max was uh you know we were chopping up about what he was trying to do, which was create you know standardized cannabis education. And at the time, a lot of the original people, almost all of them except me, they kind of bought into Green Flowers investors to be able to create the business. And for me, I didn't. I just worked out a deal with Max where like I'll I'll put content together for you, but. I won't charge you for my time and I'm not paying you for yours, 
what we can do is we can do some mutual benefit. And so it allowed me to work with Max in a really like friendly way. And, and Max was a driven motherfucker boy. He about what he's about. And I realized that we had to get an educational platform put in so that you could start to have it subcontracted to schools. There had to be a way to get this into the universities. There had to be a way to get this information into the public realm. And Max had the ability. And I really liked the team that he had put together. And there's been a number of people that have gone through, you know, Green Flower over the years. But in general, man, I've had a wonderful time working with all of them. So everybody's always been professional. And and because I have uh, because I'm like the antithesis to professional, I always respect them because they they make they make it easy for me because I don't have a background that's normal. So they allow me to kind of work in a different capacity than most people do and how I present. And what it does, it allows me to get the information that they want out and it lets me enjoy the process. And so working with Max was great. And then I meet Derek. Derek comes in to do the high rollers and, and you know, cannabis cultivation series. And so we all have this nice relationship and they they knew they wanted to create a cannabis certification for a, a connoisseurship appreciation. And they loved the name Ganjier and they knew we had a successful platform based with it. And also that, you know, they believe that we'd be able to help them shape it. And so when they approached me and, and the crew, we knew it was a good, a good relationship. And when Max was talking about a hundred year journey of, you know, the beginning of it, I had researched Appalachians fucking heavily and sommeliers heavily prior. And a lot of it was really Frenchy triggered it. Frenchy kind of triggered the conversation. And then my, I had a guy works with me, Luke, who fucking is a research nut. And he dove into it. And then I knew Calvino and the group Mendo. So we also we all had all these these Appalachian conversations and about how the French created standards in wine to raise the prices and how they were able to legitimatize it because they were able to say, look, we have the data and we have a proof. And so I knew that we didn't have all the pieces, but I knew we had the beginning. And so you have to be able to start to create the education to go along with it. And when Max and Derek and I sat down and they said, hey, this is what we want to do. And we want to bring in this this group of people to shape it. When I saw the list of the people they wanted to bring in and we started going through it, I realized that they had a really diverse group. And that what it would do is it would give us a perspective that would be rounded because people had always asked me to do a certification. But I was like, I'm not really qualified. I can only teach you what I know. Right. Cannabis is way bigger than me. And so the thing is, when you become like known in cannabis, People think, you know, you are cannabis. And I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm a fucking fleck in a giant wall of color. And that's it. I'm, I, and I know I'm a good fucking fleck, <laughs> but I'm a fleck on a fucking wall of color. So when they said, hey, we're going to bring a team in and we're going to put together all this stuff, I, I knew that it was possible because we had the talent. And then when they were willing to commit to what they committed to, which was like really about 7,000 hours for the 18 of us to work together, it allowed us to create an, uh, an idea of, of education. So people got a cannabis education of the big picture of cannabis, just so they could understand where they were in time and how they got here. And then a really, really, really deep fucking dive into assessment about what things matter and what things don't and how do you weigh the grade? And that shit was a wild one to be part of because you got 18 opinionated people brawling it the fuck out. But what we did is we put down really 
all our own personal biases and we really worked for what we thought would be the best system. And so it was it was an incredible effort by Derek Gilman. Derek Gilman, I love that fucking guy, but man, I'm telling you, he's a sweetheart of a dude, but he herded 18 cannabis cats for fucking two years and kept us on track to get that shit done. And that, that, that it, you know, it's like administratively keeping a fucking project moving is not easy. Not easy. Not and Derek easy. ran that shit. And so he, he became like, you know, the fucking heart and soul of the Gangier to drive it forward. And it, it allowed us to be able to have a, a continuity. And then I fought to get it into Humboldt County so that we would be able to have the people come to Humboldt and then introduce them to craft farmers. So that what they'd be able to do is start to see the roots of the situation. And, and then my team and cookies, we had the, uh, the, the educational center set up. We were able to uh, partner with them to use the facility at the one log. So it allowed there to be the operation there and it let the students see the operation. And then it let me bring the farmers in. And that worked out really well for the first year. And then um, once Ganjay was more established, Derek picked up a stunning ranch up in Salmon Creek. And that's the, the Ganjay campus now where they have a 240-acre parcel and the students come up and uh, it's just, it's phenomenal because a lot of the older students come back and hang out and, and chill with the newer students and work on projects and work on assessment. And what you're seeing is like a Ganjay community form and, you know, I, I, a couple of guys online were duking it out because they had a couple of, you know, you know online shit is, right? But someone was duking it out saying, you know, it's going to fucking fail. I don't like the idea. You're fucking dumb. And I'm like, well, right now when I count the numbers up, I said there's about two and a half billion dollars in herbs sold under fucking Ganjie fucking salespeople. I would say that's not a failure. And what it means is that what you're getting is you're getting people to be educated on really the levels of quality. And so that it's not just to only focus on craft farms. It's to focus on, on large operations that produce a good product at a great price. And where is the best shit? Where, really, where does the best shit live? And so we wanted the buyers to be able to understand it. And we wanted people to be able to come into the world of cannabis that were going to be the new people and to be able to start to have a, a skill set in the toolbox and then connections. And so what I try to do is I try to work with the students and just support them in the way they need and introduce them to other individuals so that you can have a benefit. And it, it's, it's, it's like I said, I, I didn't, I didn't go through the program. And so it, and, and it was, it was a really thought out process because I'm like, you know, you're fucking invent the Ganjier, but you're not a Ganjier. It's what happens is you, you become too close to something and I think it diminishes it. And what I wanted is I wanted the Gangier to be something to stand alone. And it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it's Kevin Jodry, Gangier and his Gangiers. It's no, I'm someone who came up with the idea, but I'm only one part of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to, to utilize the Gangier as well. So I have to, if I want to do an official assessment, I would hire a Gangier to do Gangier assessment because I can't walk in. And what it does, it allows all of us in the room to now be equivalently ranked. So when I walk in with three Gangier, they have something that I don't. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, you become, you become well-known. Nobody wants to talk to anybody but you. And everybody around you is all of a sudden like subpar, and that's not real. And I didn't want to damage the Gangier. And like sometimes, man, just take the fucking crown off and let someone else wear it. It's okay. 
it, it, it allows there to be a, a far greater reach. And so it's worked out really well. So this is our second year and the the feedback's been good and the students are positive and they're the most diverse group of students I've ever seen. They, they encompass every aspect of the world. And it's, it's given them the ability to understand some things that they needed and the ability to also network in ways that are crucial because what you get is you get the first time you've ever had a, a, a true quality assessment globally that's on a database that you can access. So it lets us now start to see what farms produce better products, what product seems to shine no matter who grows it, what product is risky to grow, what regions are better than others, where do we see trends increasing, decreasing, staying the same, like all the in fucking crucial data you need to do real business. The Gangier assessment provides I mean, a virtue I, I, I almost feel like that's the information that you retained that that you leveraged and were, were able to almost build your career off of. Like between 94 and 2008, you were moving so much material around and seeing all these trends. And I think from then, you know, you've really been able to not only like comment on those trends that were observed, but then leverage that into what's going to happen next in a pretty clear and concise manner. Like, I think that a lot of that comes directly from, you know, you and what, what you've said. Yeah, it's my background that it by, by, but without a question, all that work is what shaped all my views. Yeah. And for me, you know, being able to be like part of the Gangier, it's kind of like being like, like being on the banyan tree, being being on Roots of the Suits. It's it's where we get to sit down and just chop up ideas. And it lets people understand, like, you know, how'd you get somewhere? And, and in people's minds, you know, like you just fucking wake up in the morning and you walked in the room. And it, it's now it, it's fucking decades of work of applying yourself to a thing. And what happens is you you gather this massive amount of information and then I was just really fortunate that I, I see patterns well. I see how things touch. I can see how one thing pulls and pushes. And what it does, it lets you be able to help people that you're working with understand the impact of a thing on a thing. Yeah. And what, what we do is we share this information to the public so that other operators can get the benefit too because – my, like I said for years, the day I saw 120 tons of fucking weed, let me know that there's nobody competing with each other in the weed game. Yeah. They ain't fucking competing with anybody. And right now, you know, we're having to fuck around with like who's biggest in California because the borders are locked. But the day the fucking borders open up, you're going to find out who's the real players, who's the yeah. real competitors and where's the real shit coming from. And so all the millions of us that were petty fighting it out for their little shit, to me, we, we, we would, I, that's why I was so open with everything all along because I knew we weren't competitors. I know that there's a guy producing 120 fucking tons. You're not producing 120 tons. At that, if you did 100 pounds back in the day a year, you were balling. You were at half a million dollar level. Yeah. A fucking hundo, right? 100 pounds right now is like 10 fucking grand. Yeah. You got you got indoor going for eight hundred in LA, <laughs> right? So, you know the, the the fucking money was different back in the day. If you did three or four hundred pounds in a year, you were a fucking monster. Yeah. Right. And so when I when I when I saw global level drug trafficking, it let me really understand our real position, and what I wanted to do was create relationships and 
be able to work on as many projects as possible. And the only way that you can do that is to work on other people's shit. Because when you do your own project, you follow your methodology. But when I work on other people's projects, instead of me always going back to what I do, I would try to refine your project so that it was efficient in how we fixed it. And then I would address the issues systematically. And it, it just gives you a different kind of big picture view. And then, and then don't be afraid to, you know, to, to admit you don't know and go do your homework. So like, I mean, I studied fucking nonstop. I still do. I still dig and dig. I mean, um, I fucking research Dutch greenhouse work through plant empowerment through Dr. Wheel so that I can understand every fucking greenhouse in, in the world today, because that is the state of the art info. Right. So yeah. I just go find out who's everybody getting their info from. Like what's, what's the basis of all this? And then I go find that and I research that so that I understand really the prime mover behind it. And that way, what it does, it lets me understand where we are currently and what to expect and what, what, what you're going to have to know so you can achieve your objectives. So where do you, where do you see the next three years in cannabis in the U S like, what do you see unfolding Oh shit, man! Well, you got another year and a half of this fucking freak show. the 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 beauty of the beauty of being in America is that we're whores for money, and that when the money was greater to fuck the grower, we fucked the grower. But now the money's better to tax the grower, and the problem is is that they've taxed them so hard that they're not getting any fucking revenue either. And so what you're going to see is you're going to have to start seeing the 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 lessening of the restrictions. And, and then the borders have to open up. And there's no question in anybody's mind this has to take place. But the idea, you know, that it was going to be under the Democrats because they're so conscientious and so uh, about, you know, people's rights. And I'm like, no, they just fly a different fucking flag. They, they like their own fucking rights. What has to happen is there has to be economic incentive. It's kind of like with COVID when Herb was essential. We were essential because we were a fucking cash cow on taxes. And so when you allowed us to flourish, you could fucking steal all the money. And so, you know, the whole thing with uh, essential work and how cannabis was essential, I'm just like, that lets you know that they see the money, but they also are doing a poor job gathering the money. And so what I see is the next couple of years, you're going to start to see some, I mean, what do we have? We only have two States in, in what do you, what do you got? You got fucking uh, South Carolina and What's that? What's that one over there? Idaho. Yeah. Idaho and South Carolina, right? They're fucking anti-herb. The rest of the United States is is either fucking medical or low potency or or full legal. So it, at some point here, you're gonna have to have the the measure moving forward. And what I know is that every country is moving to every other country. So everybody that can that can export is trying to export and. Every country that's that that needs product that doesn't have infrastructure wants to import, and they want the business to flow through. So I think the next three years you're going to start to really see these changes, in the sense that the mega national companies, especially now that the canopy cap has come off in California, I, I've been waiting for this because it's now you'll see who emerges as a as a real California player where you got glass house in play already, but it's going to be the field crop guys that I'm looking for. Like who's going to pick up a 40,000 acre fucking parcel because it's coming. 
And then you're going to start to see pressure because once you start to have multinationals whispering to politicians in the dark, um, we'll see change. And so unfortunately, what we're going to see is this, this massive die off of all the smaller operators. A lot of the bigger operators are going to die off, but I don't give a fuck about them because it's really not their, they don't suffer the same fucking fate. The investors suffer. So, and, and that's, that's the investment game. You, you, you take a risk to get a reward, you know? It's, it's what it is. And hopefully it pans out, but if it doesn't, it doesn't. But for the small operators, they don't have that, that blanket, and so they're all going to get culled out. But what happens is the licenses get sold. So right now there's only 250 farms in Humboldt that are operating, but all the farms are being sold with the licenses, and that means they're being picked up by new people. Yeah. And what's going to take place is they're going to allow this thing to shake out. And, and my, my theory on this has been the same for a long time. It's, it's when I started researching wine and I researched Napa and I realized that really most of Napa was really a write-off, that your wine business is really a write-off for your tech business. And so you don't have to pay capital gains. And so what it does, it allows you to build brand value. It allows you to build real estate value and lose fucking money on your taxes at the same time, which is just brilliant business. But that fucking winery did not diminish in value. So you made no money, but it's worth 22 million. It's worth 32 million. And so to me, it was there was a progression, Jameson. In California, the progression was landscaping. The mega wealthy were about landscaping. Their estates had to look special. And then they get to the point where the money's flowing so fucking hard from Silicon Valley that landscaping doesn't doesn't do it. They went after wineries. So they and so and where do you go? You go where the mystique is greatest. So they fucking go in and look at Napa value blow up. Blows the fuck up. But there's probably only one, maybe 22% of the wineries in Napa really generate money in, in the legal sense. Another 20% are Chinese owned and the and the the wine gets flown right the fuck back to, to China in a private jet. And so you're making 5x flip on the wine. So you have a chunk of Napa is Chinese. And and I'm and I'm good for that too, man. That's do your thing. And then twenty percent is real wine where they're making money. And then the other fucking massive chunk of it is really investment to wipe out capital gains. And so what I realized with all the small cannabis farms are, as we go forward into the future and people want to be into cannabis, it's the same thing. It's acquiring these small craft farms that have an ability to produce a superlative product and developing the real estate and developing the brand and using it to write off your investments on your other businesses. And it allows really? you to yeah. play in the cannabis game in a way that the rich like to play in. Every rich person that has a fucking winery, I've never hung out with them once where they didn't show up with a case of their own booze. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that if you get those individuals incentivized and, and, and I think that it's more valuable and we need to keep it more valuable to have had an existing brand and an existing product and existing notoriety previous to legalization or previous to the date acquired by said Silicon Valley individual. Totally, totally. There has to be a backstory. Yeah, because See, that's it, my whole thing with like what we did here is we remember like I caught the deal with the governor. Where I had the governor fuck like the, my impact in California cannabis. If I could say I did one thing in legalization that I'm fucking really happy about is I cut the deal with the fucking governor that you allow all of us criminals to come out of the woodwork with our existing canopy, no back taxes, no penalty. We're the only 
state in America that did that, right? And so when, when I'm talking to operators in other states and, and, and they're telling me about, like, people ask me, like, do you know Kev? They go, yeah, he's the guy that fucking cut the deal in California that there's no governor in America that talked to anybody personally that cut a fucking deal. Yeah. And, and the deal was really, he saw how much shit I had running. So he was looking at the, the fucking operation. He's looking at all this stuff, and he's like, Jesus Christ. He goes, you built all this shit under the cover at night. And I said, yeah, but I'm not unique. I'm, I'm really just one of many. And I said, and you need to understand that if you stifle us out, we're going to fucking do something different, and you're going to have a whole other set of problems. Yeah. And so if you allow us the ability to come forward and utilize it, and so in order for us to get those first permits – you had to you had to state you were a fucking viewer doing felony shit. You had to write it out and admit that you were a criminal in order to get the 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 provenance. Yeah. But to me, it's crucial because my farm was criminal before two fifteen, criminal after two fifteen, criminal all the way up until legal. And it had a history of producing product that was good, and that's why the farm was retained. It wasn't about I need a place to grow weed. Yeah. It's that that place had an impact on the weed that I thought was so profound that it needed to be a legal farm. And I think that the 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 story and the the ability for these places to shine is what's really needed. But it's 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 a matter of does the public really understand and does the public care? And when you take away the disposable income, People don't give a fuck. So during COVID, people were buying $600 ounces every day. You leave COVID, and now they're buying a fucking $75 ounce because that's what they have the money for. And so the problem is because we're in this this, this fucking bear market, and it's going to be this way for a minute, and you've inflated the uh, the prices so high and you've taken away income, you've created this, this little strip of who can actually afford to buy legal cannabis of, at a level. And it, it's, it makes it so difficult because really you've taken the, the disposable income away from the people and you've created the situation where it's so unbelievably taxed. It's almost impossible to ever get rid of the, the legitimate, the, you know, the old legitimate market, the one that, that really satisfied the needs of the people. So in order for the, 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 the progression to occur, you really have to be able to have these, these changes, and they take time. And so for me, it's, it's, it's with the farm. It's a long game. It's that I know that as long as I can generate a profit from the farm to keep it alive – then we can keep the farm alive because you have to be able to build brand awareness and you have to constantly keep your hand in the craft you're in or you get stale. You can't pause. So it's like I never pause what I do because it's kind of like with athletics, right? There's, there's a, a pace that you acquire a property and then there's a, there's a pace that the property leaves. And so with something like cardio, if I build my cardio to the right level, I can actually stop all cardio almost a month before the competition and retain all the cardio properties. But after a month, I start to diminish until it leaves. With speed, it's 24 hours. If I'm not working on speed every 24 fucking hours, I slow down. And so speed is the property you lose quickest. Cardio is the property you retain the longest. 
and it's the same thing to me with your craft skills is that you got to stay in the game constantly. You can never leave the game or you become stale quickly. And so you always have to cultivate. You always have to, to be in, in process of something yeah. or you're just not there. And if you look at look at cultivation, the people that are cultivating a couple of years ago, look at the indoor product they're spitting out right now with crop steering. You know, you get the you get a you get a tuned fucking light so that you're getting more far reds to fucking really throw this thing out into 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 blowoutville, and you're making sure that you're keeping your fucking block EC at fucking eight, and you're drying back to get these regenerative pushes. What you're seeing is a level of indoor production in terms of quantity and visual beauty that I've never seen in the industry. Now, does it smoke good? No. Most of it's smoking like fucking cardboard. But bottom line is you're seeing these movements. And so if you're not in the game right now, you're still thinking what you did a couple of years ago was good. And to me, you have to you have to just live in the real. You have to be able to be constantly doing what you're doing. And I think that with the farms that had historical relevance, they they add a little value to the story. But as we keep moving forward, the the people that are coming in as clients of today don't understand the historical relevance because they've always been able to buy cannabis. Yeah. If your whole if your whole career is buying from a dispensary, you don't see the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about your work with cookies. I mean, I know you started out yeah. simply like cultivating for them and then you ended up working with them uh, in partnership at the one log and, and ultimately. No, the partnership, I didn't cultivate for cookies at first. The cultivation came later. The, oh. the, we had the conversation with Jigga. It was about, is about taking over their nursery operations. And so oh, okay. that's what. That's, oh, what started operate, that's what started our relationship was in nursery. And then as we all were hanging out, it started to evolve into, hey, we would like to be able to do more work with local farmers. We would be able, yeah. you know, and so I said, hey, I said, I'll try to make these connections and start putting this together. And the reality is small farmers do fucking really good work. So, yeah, I mean, you ended up cultivating for them. We recently saw they did that partnership with Ridgeline, which was pretty cool to see, Um, you know, starting to bring in legacy farmers into the fold. I know you're doing a little bit of work with them. or uh, I know you're doing work with them in Australia. Um, Can you talk? I worked with them, but yes and no. Like I'm working in Australia and I was working in Israel, but I wasn't doing it for cookies. Okay. And so like I don't work for cookies, so I don't. I'm not a cookie employee. I'm I'm a partner that owns the R&D facility, right? So I work with cookies, but I'm not a cookie employee. So when I go and work in other countries, I'm there because the other countries bring me in for me. It's just that with, with Israel and Australia, the teams that brought me in, I recognized had the right ability to work with a branded company. And that the branded company cookies would also do well. So, like, I get hit up every day to introduce somebody to somebody, right? But I never do because I'm like, look, it's just not good business for one or the other. And I don't, I don't force business on people. And it, it's just, it's just. Otherwise, you won't answer my fucking phone call, right? And so you'll answer my call because you know I'm not trying to stuff some fucking weird deal down your throat. 
So what it does, it allows you to be able to be trusted by people where they like they realize that you're you're there to do something which is further the agenda of the business. So whoever brings me in as a consultant, I'm there to help you. And while I'm there helping you, I try to help you in every way I can, not just in what you're bringing me in, because my my grasp on the industry is a little different because I touch so many fucking licenses, right? So it lets you have a different relationship in that regard. And in those two places, I was able to make the introductions because both groups are intelligent groups. And both groups have a, a really thriving subculture. So Israel and Australia has got to thrive in cannabis culture. What uh, what stood out for you when you visited Israel versus like when you visited Colombia? Oh shit, man! Well, the the Colombian people. I loved Colombia too. The Colombian people have been subjected to so much fucking abuse for so long that you you got to see a population that had never benefited from anything that occurred there. You know, I think the average wage in, in Colombia is like, you know, four or 500 bucks a month. I mean, for labor, that would fucking kill a normal person. And and to me, I'm like, whoa, you know, so my, my respect for the Colombian worker and any, any, any worker that is fucking slaving for no money is absolute because... Holy fuck, boy. Unless you've had to work really hard for very little, you just really don't catch it. Where Israel was as modern as it gets, and you had a, a an odd situation where, you know, a good chunk, almost like, say, half the population of Israel is religious, and they get supported by the other half of the population that generates the money. And so you have this strange relationship between religion and Israel, and then you have the tension of all the countries around Israel and this historical uh, relationships between all of them, which are so deep and so profound that I'm not qualified to have a fucking opinion on it. What I know is that most of the Israelis I met, the good portion of them, were young and were trying to live their life the best they could. And so what you saw was like a... A positivity that was interesting where like, you know, when you go to roll into the mall, they're opening up your car looking for bombs, but you could leave your car on the street unlocked with the window open and nobody broke into it. I could leave a backpack on the beach. Nobody stole it. But you're having to make sure that you're not having terrorism go down because of the, the conflict between. And I don't. I don't have a I don't have enough information to tell you who's right or wrong. You know, I just don't. I just I just I hate to see fucking strife in general. But the Israeli attitude was one of like, we're going to live our fucking lives because we've had to struggle so hard. And so their, their embracing of cannabis was by far the most public embracing I'd ever seen where, I mean, we're rolling joints in restaurants. I mean, I'm sitting in a, in a cafe next to a fucking Victoria's Secret model. So it's a nice cafe. And I'm looking at him like, isn't that that fucking chick, the model? He's like, yeah, she's this famous Israeli model. And I'm like, and we're going to roll right here. They go, yeah. They go, is it legal? They go, no, but we're Israeli. And we're, we're at a little restaurant and the waitress walks up and says, you know, you guys are smoking. And, um, and Ori's like, yeah. And she goes, hang on. And she comes back with her own weed and says, I think I got better weed. And she rolls a joint. And I'm like, I've never been to a restaurant in my life where the fucking waitress showed up with a joint to smoke with you to let you know her pot was better than your pot and she was getting it for a better price. You know, that's, that's what got me was the Israeli youth. There's the idea of potential and they're, they're, they're having to fight, you know, it, historically, 
but they're they see a future where the Colombians it's been so much oppression for so long that what you really need to do is you need to have like a cultural change in how the society's treated. Colombia was heavy, man. Like, you know, Colombia still got, you still got the fucking FARC. I mean, we, we were in a town and my partner asked the bartender, you know, it was all the women because there was no women anywhere. And they go, oh, the FARC was here yesterday and kidnapped like 40 of them. So when you got revolutionary forces, militarized groups coming into town, stealing 40 of your girls, and I mean, I'm in the jungle fucking around and all of a sudden the crew, these guys come rolling by me on motorcycles with fucking rocket launchers and shit. And, and they, they look at me and I give the guy a shaka and he's hanging on to a fucking bazooka, gives me a shaka back and he cruises out. The guys I'm with are like, what the fuck just happened? And I'm like, oh, you always got to let the nuts know you nutty too. They don't, they don't, they don't worry about you as much. But when you're, when you're having to live like that, how the fuck do you have a normal life? Right. And so it, it's just some crazy shit. And so, like, I think that, you know, all countries have incredible potential. And I know that Colombia does without a doubt. What you need, though, is you need to be able to have the companies that are going to come in and develop the Colombian model to have a Colombian heart. You know, where you're, you're not just trying to fuck these people over, too. You know, it, it, it's it's and, and the operation that that I'm involved in there. That's why I love the operation, because they genuinely are trying to work with the, the misplaced coca farmers because when you're done farming an area and and they've already the cops have you know uh, spotted it and you know go for eradication they can't grow there anymore they got to move the coca fucking fields so what happens to all these areas that were coca farms now they're what nothing yeah but they can become cannabis farms and they just need to be able to have a support system in place that lets them have distribution and access to information and just the things needed to stabilize the business and and not be treated like a prostitute. Yeah. So do you, you know, do you see places like Colombia and other you know uh, locales in South America as ultimately the growing grounds for mass scale isolates and distillates? Oh, that- guaranteed. There's no yeah. question. Yeah. You know it. And a lot of it is just you know the the thing is that you can't touch. You know we talked about the Midwest. And to me, you know, industrial hemp and stuff will come from the Midwest like corn. They'll be able to develop varieties. They can fucking farm like corn and, and run them through a John Deere combine. But if you're looking at like Oklahoma, where, you know, you got uh, uh, even in Colorado the other day, you had a, a, a hail hailstorm that just fucking crushed all the crops. Right. Um when you're having hail storms and and those these 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 unit you know one direction wind storms for three hours at 100 miles an hour tearing shit up, it makes it makes some of these places that we thought in the U.S. not necessarily as as valuable as we once did. And you and you talk about Colombia and you're like you know you got equatorial sun and until you've had equatorial sun beat down on your head, I don't think you quite catch intensity. And so what you're able to do is get some phenomenal fucking secondary metabolite production. And you're you're getting two seasons primarily. So you don't have to really dep anything. You just got to be able to run in those two seasons and skip the rainy season. Kind of like Israel. Israel's got a, a wet period where the best thing you can do is just shut down your operations for that fucking window and not deal with that humidity level because the, the plants just don't. They don't resin upright. It's just too moist, and and the, the the cost is too high for what you get. So, when when 
Colombia is able to really start to refine the process and, and, and get the distribution out of the country in the way they will, they are going to fucking take over field-grown stuff. But for me, craft flour, what I learned from California is that craft flour is, is something that does not ship well. The shipping of craft flour is something that is troublesome. And if you're having issues with distribution and lack of quality, just trying to move it in your own state, imagine what happens when you move it to another fucking country. And so until we get the supply chain straight, it makes it tough for small operators to be able to really benefit from the idea of getting product out of the area. So like to me, I still think that, you know, it, it, it's not so much just raw hash, but it's the, the pen revolution came back. And, and we had pointed this out years ago where I was, I was watching the data. And I said, hey, flowers are fucking dropping and concentrates are rising. And they hit that, they hit that intersection and then concentrates took off. Then we got into VapeGate. And really, VapeGate, I think, was connected into COVID, but they hadn't identified it yet, right? Yeah. So they have this terrifying fear. Then all of a sudden, that shit's back. And what you have now is you have a far more awareness of what makes a good pen. Yeah. And you're seeing the evolution of real uh, concentrate being used. So it's but not just, you know, uh, just, plant, plant derived disty. It's, yeah. it's real cannabis in a fucking pen. Yeah. Just to pull it back a little bit about what you said about, you know, craft, um, craft flour specifically not transporting well. And just imagine if you were to transport it internationally. Well, I, I mean, I think that we have seen in the last 24 to 36 months, like an, just an insane increase in focus of individuals breeding for solventless hash production. Yep. I think that there needs to be the same amount, uh, another group of individuals with just as much passion and fervor breeding towards smokability because mm -hmm. to this point we've gotten to oh well it's yeah it's good but like you know yeah a lot of heads end up in the bottom of the bag even when it's cured properly and i think that that transport issue is addressed twofold by a genetics and then b the pr proper dry and cure and so i mm -hmm. think that i don't feel as though other than like mean gene and a you other guys i don't really feel there's guys who are just like no i'm not i'm not looking at solventless right now like i'm purely looking at smokability and i don't even feel as though there's a lot of people who go and those those glands will stay on the plant until you're ready to smoke them like i, I think that that that's going to be hopefully something that we see going forward oh guaranteed you know you're i was just talking to some guys the other day but it was with you know high 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 resolution imagery and you're studying the abscission layer. And so what you're doing is you're starting to identify plants that have a really fragile abscission layer, which make them phenomenal for wash. And then plants that have a developed abscission layer, shorter stalk, so that you end up having far less breakage and ease in trimming. So less damage in the trimming as well as less uh, gland breaking free in transit. And so I don't see these things as a forever issue but I just see them as an issue today because what we're doing is we're just, we're just growing pot. And if it, if it's sold, it got hybridized into fucking everything. And it, it's, it's not looking at the fact that you want to get the herb out of the area as, as the work been done in like holdability studies. It's kind of, to me, that's what the Gangier stuff is so crucial 
because it allows you to be able to, to look at cannabis from an assessment point of view and figure out what held up over time. So the things that don't hold for time, you can't ship. You have to turn them into a concentrate or they must be sold right away locally in some type of expedited batch. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's we always talk about the chems where like, you know, you, you want to get a really sizzling high, uh, chems where it's at. Yeah. But it browns rapidly. Yeah. And so that oxidization just really tears up your your sellability because it's the idea that if it's changing color, it must be wrong. So you can't really even stabilize the product properly. You almost have to grow it and then get rid of it right away so that the, the customer never really gets the developed flavor more at the expense of the pale color. Yeah. And, and a lot of the education with people. I think that we also have to remind ourselves that like so few people have had a cup of coffee on a Colombian coffee farm or a freshly slaughtered animal or a freshly harvested organically grown vegetable fresh from the farm. Like these are all experiences that unfortunately minor nuances can't be replicated when you have to transport that material you know like when you rip lettuce and that that like white milky stuff that comes out that doesn't come out after a couple days like it's just exactly once it's it's same with cannabis too once once we once we start to damage the glands and we start to break them and we start to oxidize that product it's changing and so a lot of it is you know trying to figure out what to do but you know when you're at when you're at a small craft level your, your total amount of flour isn't great. It should be able to be moved within your state. And then what you would be able to do is have a crew of people, a region, work on hash production because hash is the product that has the shelf life. And me, me and Frenchie have talked about that forever about – he's just like, I just don't think there's any way to move flour in a way that's going to give the people the the satisfaction they want without being fresh access It'll be too difficult. Whereas the hash done correctly could hold. And that was to him was, you know, his traditional methodologies. But nowadays, you know, you have a hash revolution that's mind bending where the quality is to the point where they're, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a flavor you get in a mouthful of, of fresh hash that's mind bending. And I, I'm just fascinated by it because what it does, it alleviates a lot of the issues. And so you're going to have different markets. You know, the European market is going to seek a traditional hash. They're going to seek a Moroccan hash more than they're going to seek an American hash because they want to mix it with tobacco. They have preset ideas of what they want from America. We love, we love raw potency. We like that shit strong. And so you, you have a, a, a different product here so it's hash but it's most definitely a different product and it just has to be exposed to the europeans it has to be exposed to the africans it has to be exposed to these other continents so people can get an idea of what, what do they like better are yeah. you a traditional hash smoker or do you what like do you, what do you think about this kev do you think that like the any purist in in any of those hash categories do you think that they should stick to their guns and stick to their form factors or do you think that they should push the product category that we all see is gaining the most traction, which is vape pens and and, and um, convenience category, knowing that eventually the cons- there's a percentage of those vape can- pen consumers are going to lead into wanting more and heading into 
those other forms of consumption. Because I go back and forth between that, where I, you know, go, I, I kind of almost want to be anti-vape pen. And then it's like, well, I think vape pen might be a good place to start. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it you kind of have to be true to what you do for yourself, right? So if you're a traditional hash maker and you're, you're in Lebanon, Morocco, that's the product you should make because it's one that people have been consuming for thousands of years and dig. And their, their situation allows them to be able to create a pretty, pretty interesting product from genetic selection and from the impact of the environment and from the cultural aspects. So if I was in one of those places, I would focus on my traditional products. But here in the U.S., I would say, like, look at Canada. Canada's got, you know, we have a, you have a radically different amount of people consuming hash in Canada than the U.S., where we're way more pen-based. So I think it's really identifying where your market is and where you think it's going to end up. But what I know is that, you know, I, I never liked pens because I never liked Disty. It's just a, a, it's an unsatisfying high that you just you chase all day and you never get high. You're, you're affected, but it's muddled. And we start to see the evolution of, you know, these live rosin pens coming in. And then I'm over in Michigan and I, um, I'm, I'm fucking around with Nick Risden and then uh, Turp Wizard. And Turp Wizard had these, these pens that had uh, his product in it. And I took a rip off of that and that thing blew my mouth wide open. I went, whoa, that is the product that's needed. And it, and, it, and it was the device too. The device had the right tactile feel, had the right size and shape. So it would fit in your pocket easy. If you put it on a table, it didn't roll. And really simple. You had a window to see so you knew where you're at with it. You didn't have to put anything in. It was just you just use it when it's done, you dispose of it. And so I think that you know you need to have like a recycling option for the pens to where there's some kind of disposal instead of just throwing in the fucking trash. There's gotta be a way to be more intelligent with the device. But if you weren't traditional hash. I wouldn't go into traditional hash. I would allow the traditional hash countries to be traditional hash countries because it fits the culture and, and there's already that market established. But for us in the US, yeah, it's to go, it's really to, to chase what is the it's the the desire of the consumer. And today's consumers didn't come into cannabis through tobacco like most of us did. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they they came into it through the tobacco pen. So what they have is a flavor fixation because they've been vaping like crazy. So they're vaping, vaping, flavor, flavor, every flavor in the sun you can get. And so what they have expectations of is a mouthful of flavor. And if they burn a joint, they're not that happy. But if they grab a vape pen and it's, it's, and it's just layering across their teeth, they are. And so you, you just have to realize, too, it's, it's kind of like we were just talking about, you know, 51% of the people coming in want something lemon. And then berry and then gas. And that lemon and the berry are really, to me, coming from the tobacco world. And what they know is that the citrus was because citrus has uh, the highest amount of addiction. And so when I did my research on tobacco, um, because I'm fucking fascinated, I I love to look at how big companies look at things. And so what they did is they, they, they figured out what has the highest level of addictive return traits. And it's, it's basically lemon, grapefruit, and orange. And so lemon, grapefruit, and orange flavors have the most, you go to them. And so they lay those into their vape cartridges to get that addictive response. And so I was just like, okay, let's just watch and see what happens with cannabis and let's watch it play out. 
And so what you have is you have that berry explosion, all those fruits and berries that are all coming from uh, tobacco vape. And then lemon, which is just something that seems to attract, like I said, 51% of the people are hitting that shit. So it's that kind of information that you have to be aware of so you can understand who's going to be buying your herbs. So the people who used to buy herb are getting old and dying. And new people are coming in that didn't buy herb. And how are they being introduced to cannabis? And what is their desires? And so for most people I meet that are young, they can't roll a joint. Like, they just don't know how to roll. I mean, like, they just can't fucking roll. And if they don't have a tool or something, like, it ain't happening. Like, rolling a joint while they're driving the car. And people look at me like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm fucking rolling while I'm driving. In, in your hand, you know? Straight up. Straight up. You know, and I'm just like, I got you. I realize that's because I'm fucking old. Yeah. And so what we have is we have to just accept the fact that the kids of today, they're going to want cannabis to be in a form that is for them. And what they have expectations on is great flavor and convenience. And the the ability for us as farmers to create that is crucial. And so, you know, this. Do you see longevity for the the torch and glass culture or do you feel as though the glass culture has to meld with these electronics like we're seeing with these new puffcos and things where you can have it it'll it'll always be the it'll it'll always be there but the thing is that like for a lot of people that were my age the glass culture freaked them out because it made them think they were freebasing coke yeah right you're you're a fucking rockhead kind of shit right so you know the only thing you're not doing is taking a light bulb out the ceiling and busting a hole in it yeah (laughs) and so it 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 just fucks them up but what i love about the glass culture is it merged art with consumption you know and so if you look at some of this stuff look you know me i just i was watching the melting of the heads you know and it, it's just you have a you have a there was there was a there was a group here in Humboldt that that they're nowhere near the level of success as as Scott, but very similar idea where an individual who was a successful blower put together a facility that had room for forty blowers, and that's where all this work was getting produced. And they were all different level craftsmen, but a lot of them could work collaboratively. Some guys were Millie ex, you know, Millie formers where they did all the Millie creation and then other artists would buy the Millies from them to use. And I mean, so to me, it was fascinating to see uh, a glass incubator. And I think it's awesome. And I just think that what you're going to see is as technology gets better and better, you're not going to want the torch. You're going to go into these electric, there's people already there with the new the new little Puffco proxy, and you can yes. That also, that, I watched that go down the other day, and they, yeah. the, just the unit can be put yeah. into any kind of It'll device. Just anything, so I think that that's so, interesting. It's an evolution, and I think that you'll always have people who still want to hit the torch and hit the nail. But as I think that the glass, just, like I think it's important that we continue to to like draw the connection between glass and and cannabis and how you know, for a long time, that was a safe place to keep your money and, and that each industry supported innovation in the other. And, and I think that any project that is really focused on promoting cannabis culture should try and involve glass culture, because I think the two like very much coincide with each other. And it's not something from an outside observer standpoint, I, I feel you see as a parent or connected. And it's not until you actually really get deep into the industry that you're like, oh my gosh, these two things are so connected. Oh, totally. Cannabis drove 
glass art. I mean, to me, organic food th- is owes cannabis because it was all of us producing herb that could afford to buy a $40 fucking broccoli. Because who the fuck's buying $40 broccoli, right? You're like, you can't afford that shit. But you can when you're a dope grower. And you, what happens, though, is you're like, I'm not paying 40 bucks for that fucking thing. I'm going to grow my own. But with the glass, it, it brought people into an awareness of, like, art appreciation in a different way. Kind of like, to me, like the NFTs do. NFTs allow you to be able to work with art differently. It's, it's, you have to merge the cultures. Cannabis touched everyone. It's the same thing with music and glass and sports and cannabis all go together. They're all, they all go together. All athletes were consuming herb. All musicians are consuming herb. Not maybe not all, but a fucking great percentage. And yeah. glass was where you had people that could express themselves in an art form and get paid. Because otherwise, who the fuck's making money in glass? Yeah. Because I have friends that are soft glass artists, and I and I I used to hang out at a soft glass artist studio. And whenever they had the Italians come in, they would have these Italian super fucking blowers come in. I'd get invited to watch them do these collaborative like sculptures and shit. And, you know, old school, big spin in the fucking tube glass kind of thing. Yeah. And it was just such an incredible thing to see the, the, the world of glass art. And then we get into cannabis glass. But I just see it as kind of like the Puffco of now where you got the base Puffco, but you can get a really gla- killer glass component to click into it. Yeah. And so I just think you're going to constantly see these evolutions and the and involvement. And so much of it is to be able to record it so that, that people can kind of understand the history of where we were and how we got to where we are. And, and so much of that lets you understand like what was chosen to grow and why it was produced and how it got hot, where the hype was, how these things took off. Yeah. And then changes in technology and how we go from having the most expensive product, which was BHO, which also costs the most to make. And you go back into, you know, hash and you're talking about people using paddles under some fucking, you know, cheap low temps and they're producing some of the finest shit ever created. Yeah. So yeah. you, you got to be able to see all these pieces and, and because what it does, it just em- empowers you as the consumer to be able to find out where you feel you belong. It, 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 everybody ought to have their their place. If you're somebody who's fascinated with hash culture, you you should be able to go chase it, and you should be able to go dig back in time, and you should be able to go find traditional products and consume them in a traditional way. If you want to smoke hash, smoke it out of that fucking quasar that um, Frenchie turned me on to. We were we were puffing a fucking fat patty of hash oh, on, yeah. on Frenchie's uh, the day Frenchie uh, the anniversary of his death. Uh, all of us were up at the Gangier campus and we were going to do an assessment for the students. But instead, we took the night off and did it the next day. And what we did is we had a, a Frenchie appreciation party because Derek had a bunch of hash Frenchie had washed and made and he had put away. And so we were breaking out patties that were rolled by Frenchie that he didn't hear no more. And so we broke out the hookah and we got the quasar and we, we sat down and just smoked Frenchie. That's cool. And, oh, it was fucking awesome, you know? And it was just such a... And, and smoking out of a hooker where you're having to hold the head. You know what I mean? It's, it's oh, got yeah, a, yeah. a different rhythm. Yeah. And so stuff like that is is, is huge because it lets you go back in time and, and, and feel 
feel the roots of what you're in. And then you you uh, sit down next to Nika and he breaks out a brand new one of those Puffco superheads. And we're blasting some of his fucking killer shit. And you're just like, wow, this is incredible. So I don't think anything is necessarily just supersedes it completely because cannabis has an emotional connection. If it was just technology, then it would just be technology. We'd say yeah. the, the, the digital replaces the analog. Yeah. But if you're really into music, digital didn't replace analog. Yeah. For the people that are audiophiles, they're about fucking yeah. diamond on vinyl. And but it's, it's still at the end of the day, it's about the resin. I mean, like, yeah, it's still about you want to heat it up electronically or with a with a with an open flame. Exactly. Whatever the fuck you want to do. But I think that, you know, as we get into the convenience, it keeps moving that direction. I, I want to see it expanded. Like as long it's fine if this is this is a, a, a robotic electronic. But like, I think that the only way it's gonna, we're seeing smoking cannabis flower combusting it declining. It's still yeah. a large, large market segment, but it's not growing market segment. And I don't no. think it's going to be growing, uh-uh. in my personal opinion. I think that if if we need to, I think coming up with unique ways where we can incorporate glass culture while moving away from a blowtorch, but not using a vape pen, a glass. Even if you have like, I don't want to see glass attachments for disposable vape pens. Like no, no, no. The pens, the pens are convenient because they're yeah. just convenient. But the ability to. The, the thing, and the thing why I, th- I think ultimately when it comes down to like with the pen is that you're having to cut the product with more of your 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 volatile oils, right? So that you get a burnability. And so the thing is, is that it starts changing the product. Yeah. And so what I want to see is the product as the product is without me having to add anything extra to it. I want that to be what it is because I think the nuance is the best. So I think that a pen is is less quality in terms of my experience with the with the with the mouth with the feel and the high than it is if I'm hitting it off a glass and it's not even about you know it, it's you put all the same products together i think that the glass is still giving you the clearest cleanest delivery but it's just a matter of you know are are people willing to go that far? Do most people want to be able to appreciate it? And so what you'll have is you'll have the heady heady group that go that route, and then you'll have the people that are a notch below it in terms of like how pure they want it to be. But it's going to be a a fresh frozen. It's going to be in a form that they know is phenomenal. And then you get down into the realities of people that just have less money, and they they need cannabis in a form they can afford. And the, and the desire there is for really, that's where I want international cannabis to fill the void. You, you, you have to have, you know, the small craft regions produce Epicurean product. Because when you put it side by side, you can't fucking compare it. You can't, you, if you're squirting three-part through a dripper, it's hard for me to say that, that, that that's an Epicurean product. It, it's, it's a technologically driven product. But for me, what I want to see is microbial delivery. I want to see, I want to see a, a bio consortium bringing forth the plant's need at the level the plant wants it. And I don't really give a fuck if I'm getting the dry back. I don't care if I'm getting the stack. I'm not concerned as much about my grams per square foot. What I'm concerned about is my quality per puff. And you can't you that's the one thing you can't fake and that's really what drove me into organic ag fucking forever ago was that i mean i was chem city forever 
because we all were. There was no, there was almost nobody really doing full organic, right? It was like the, one of the old hippies, and I had an old hippie that did indoor organic that was phenomenal, and it, it was blueberry, and I was paying him four hundred bucks an ounce because the flay, and he, and then he, they did a white widow too, but I couldn't get over the fact of the complexity of the mouth. I never it, hear a hash maker say that was my biggest yield and my best tasting yield. Never, never, it never goes like that. And that's the whole thing with what we do as, as you know, craft farmers is that we're relying on the fact that one joint should be pretty satisfying, right? And so like, if I burn a joint, a really quality product, just like really good hash, if I smoke some really good hash, I don't run right back to the pipe. But if I'm hitting fucking disty, I swear to God, it's the worst. If someone offers me, I say, well, I can't fuck with that way. I go, why? Because I'm going to smoke it fucking for the next six hours. Because I, 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 it's like I'm junking out. Cause I, I'm not getting high, but I know it's there. <laughs> it's not. So yeah. what you have to be able to do is 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 be able to have the, the, the ability to expose people. And that's what's tough that you you have to be able to get situations where the average individual gets a chance to just get exposed to good flour. They get exposed to good hash. They, they just don't get the chance. And so it, it, it it's kind of like with cultivators where, you know, you're growing some bunk ass shit. I mean, the number of people that used to come to me to bring me herb and stuff that was just fucking trash was unreal. And my favorite was everybody that was curing it. Right. And I'm like, we cured it. I says, you sure did. You cured it of any fucking quality it had. This shit's ammonia, bud, bro. You better get rid of it. It's fucking decomposed. And so what they needed was they just needed the, uh, some help, and they needed some better herb to grow. And so, like, that was, you know, like, all those years of, of, of trying to drive quality in the system was to be able to help people lift up the bar. And, and people were like, but, Kev, you're lifting up the bar, which means we're all going to have to lift up the bar. And I'm like, yeah, that's the whole fucking point that you have to continuously push the fucking bar. You can never be stagnant in your craft. I don't give a fuck. I mean, I, I remember getting an argument with somebody about technology and they were talking about, you know, Michelangelo didn't use a jackhammer. And I said, well, he used a fucking metal chisel. He wasn't using fucking wood. So he used the state of the art that he had in fucking 1400. If you didn't have the tool, you wouldn't have done the work. And if he had a jackhammer, he would have made fucking 80 Davids. Because yeah. he would have peeled that rock the fuck off of him even quicker. Yeah. It wouldn't have diminished his work because he's still the artisan. He's just using a tool. And so, so much of that is how we have to see this. But people get confused because you think that antiquated purity somehow makes a better job. And it's not. It's about, is it is it better? And and like that's like I said, that's why I always go back to the Gangier stuff in terms of, what you're getting is the first time you're getting like objective reviews of products that are in a common database that we can query any fucking phrase in the entire assessment. So I can put in rare and everything that is rated rare jumps up. Then I can say rare with scores over 90 and all of a sudden, boop, now we have our outliers. Yeah. Where do they live and who's producing them? Yeah. And what it does, it starts to allow you to be able to really understand where you know where is these lines and where where they where they not so i just think you 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 have a, a a an urgency now that's unique because they stole all the money and so everyone is desperate to survive because they're going fucking bankrupt and so there's this incredible like breathlessness and 
in some cases, it's almost like, well, you just have to admit maybe this isn't the job for you for the future. And you yeah. just got to step to the side and let it be what it is. But at the same time, it doesn't mean you have to give up your love of herb and it doesn't mean you have to give up your, your cultivation practices or your desire to make your own fucking high level hash. And for me, I, I, you know, it's funny, man, I'm in the fucking industry, but I wish there wasn't an industry. I wish everybody just produced. Yeah. And what it did is it would allow all of us to be able to have a really unique relationship where you're sharing and, and trading. Yeah. Yeah. You that know? And it, yeah. That's, 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 that's the smoker in me. You know what I mean, but the business end of Kev says that um, you better be really clear about who you're selling this shit to. And if you have to fucking convince anybody of anything, you've already lost. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, if anybody's positioned and, and, and seen enough and participated enough to, to, to be able to not only roll with the punches, but, but see them coming, I think it's you, Kev. What, um, other than, other than the Gangier, you're working Colombia. You're working Australia. Are there any? I, I know you're 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 a new dad, a new dad again to, to a young guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And a grand grand grandson too. My my grandson granddaughter. Too. My son. My a granddaughter. My little girl. My Juniper. My son had a little girl. I'm thinking, uh, and I'm and I'm I'm fucking around in um in uh I get I get asked to do some assistance on some work in Morocco. Oh, amazing. Maybe. And yeah, I know it's fascinating to me because with Morocco, so much of it is about um, developing the identity of the region so that you can really start to highlight these production regions in the rift and also start to go and sequence all the cannabis to try to get rid of the American and Dutch genes that have infiltrated it because it's killing them as farmers because it doesn't have the ability to handle the climate. And so everyone's always trying to improve the quality of the plant, but you're kind of failing to realize that plants that were grown in rock wool don't necessarily transfer well to the fucking Middle East. And 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 the I and it's funny because when you you know when you're listening to the problems and you listen to all these incredible agronomists and they're all saying, you know, you gotta increase your water flow, and they're like, that's the fucking problem. We don't have any. And so they're like, well, then maybe you don't grow, and you're like, wait, that's not the answer. And so to get brought in to kind of work on issues to figure out how do you help develop a better situation. And in, in the case with uh, Morocco, it's fascinating because it's uh, the science lab that's connected to the project is ran by Didi Mary. So what you have is some of the smartest cannabinoid scientists of the planet looking at it from their perspective. And the genomic teams in Israel to help sequence and to start to isolate and be able to really start to refine the true Moroccan lineages so that what you have is you have the products that were selected for effect over time. And I think that's what people just don't catch is that you're getting, you're getting a, a, a process that took centuries to create. And just because you have a cool wedding cake cut, it, it, it's a radically different thing than what they've created. And if we had wedding cake that lasted for centuries and people were still buying it 300 years later, I'd say, all right, we went the right route there. But they, you know, the cakes and cookies are cool because they have killer morphology. And they, so they stack really nice and the numbers are fucking hot and they look great under lead light. And every now and then a cut or two is pretty decent in terms of flavor, but it, it's, it's commercial cannabis meant for the commercial world. And for me, you know, to work in some of the countries of origin, 
it's really trying to be able to help them figure out how do we develop the duality of the markets where there's things that you can produce here that don't necessarily dictate or indicate your geographical proximity and then things that you must grow there that are defining your proximity so that when people come to your country or they want an export they can get the real thing like real colombia og kush grown in colombia doesn't turn me on as much as fucking puto rojo in colombia right because what i want is i want to smoke the herb that people played with for two or three hundred years and this is what they selected based off of these reasons and so when you get to consume it, you get to go into that cerebral world of Colombian cannabis and it fits the climate, it fits the place, it fits the people. And, and I just think people don't catch it that what they want is they just want to, I want to smoke my weed. And I'm like, yeah, but no, no. What you want to do is you want to smoke the region. You want to, it's kind of like food. You know, you, you, uh, you go to another country and you're buying a McDonald's and I'm like, you're missing the point. You, 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 you should try to eat the local food and get a feel for what is produced in the area and the things the people chose and why they chose it. So that what you're really doing is you're getting an insight that's priceless. You, you can understand selection. I don't think people really, I mean, I explained this to a, a, a building full of fucking doctors where I did a lecture in Florida to uh, an entire fucking building full of doctors. And I was like, you guys are aware that cannabis isn't random, right? That every one of these countries that produced herb, it wasn't like they just found a fucking cut and grew it and sold it. It was things that they chose for their purposes that fits that area. And so if you look at the area and you look at the societal pressures and the struggles, the cannabis fucking matches. And to them, this was like the most profound thing they'd ever heard. They were like, you got to be kidding. I'm like, this is fucking amazing. I was talking to Raphael Mishulam's brother, and he was just like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And I'm like, whoa, people don't really understand the relationship with the country of production and how the people who produced it impacted radically what they grew. The region and the person combined make the product. And that's what I think that we need to be able to have is the ability to go on like cannabis tours where, you know, you come to Humboldt County and you get to fuck around in Humboldt and you take a trip to Michigan and you go fuck with the Michigan crew. And then you take a nice trip down to Mexico and you get to see what's happening in the fucking high deserts of Mexico. And you're down in, in Colombia and you're either in Cali where it's dry or, or you're out in Bachata where it's fucking jungly mountain. You're going to get a feel for those things, and it's going to give you an appreciation that you just can't pick up from idea. you got to experience it, and we have to have an ability for people to be able to really understand that, that America doesn't produce the best pot. We produce some excellent pot, but it's so much more profound than that, and it's it's – it's the fact that because it was a drug and it was so restricted and most people only bought herb from a dealer or they got some seeds online and grew some shit, their overall exposure is low. So, you know, they, they don't really have an idea what it was like to burn fucking herb from Colombia when it was coming from Colombia. They don't, they, they've never been, they've never got to smoke Southeast Asian that was grown fucking correctly where, you know, it almost makes you so high you fucking scared. So, I think that's what we need to do is really start to create these junkets so that what you have is you have, you know, um, tasting events 
to where you're really experiencing here. Here's hash from Lebanon, Morocco, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the United States. And then you'd be able to sit mm -hmm. down and break into it. Do you think competitions are the key? Like, I kind of have this theory that, like, every other industry from little, like, from little league sports to whiskey has a lot more competitions. And I think that that's how you build community and get better. Do you feel the same way or do you think the cannabis is so nuanced that you can't apply that same metric? No, you can have the competitions. The competitions bring together. I think what you have to have is you have to have competitions so that you get people that want to bring forth product for sale. And then I think you have to have some kind of like cultural events where they're like, because the events that we did, the tarps were competitions and they were awesome events. But the vibe at the spring events we did, where it was everybody getting together to like go through the gene pool to figure out what they were going to grow. That was cooler because it was it was really about trying to figure out what you were going to do and to look at things versus like I'm bringing my competition stuff to compete. So I think you have to have more competitions so that you're able to, you know, get more involvement. But I think what you need to have is you need to be able to have more social events in a way where instead of being a competition, in, in a, so instead of me buying my ticket to the competition, I buy my ticket to an experience. And then what it does, it allows the individuals to be able to spend time with like say five or six farmers. Yeah. And then five or six farmers bring their products and they're there. And then it allows people to be able to hang out with the farmer and smoke their flour, smoke the hash and just kind of get a feel in general for what it is. And because you're not competing with each other, you're, you're typically a little more cool about the behavior. Yeah. And I think that, that that's the part about cannabis that I want to make sure like doesn't go away that cannabis, cannabis allowed people to be nice to each other when they were consuming it. it it's rare that you got a group of people together of any type that smoked that, it turned out to be a bad time. Most time when you're burning good herb, you're burning some good hash together. Everybody's so happy that they're smoking such good shit that they're just grinning. And I think that that's the way we go about it is you get the, 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 the public that never got a chance to be exposed. Like the tarp, we, we did the judging where I brought in some pros so that I had, you know, a, a group that knew what they were doing. But the majority of the judges were people who just wanted to judge herb. And they buy pot, so they, they're, they're, they're capable of making a decision. And what it did is it allowed us to get regular people to look at the product. And that, that impact and that feel, I think, resonated differently than, if, than just a bunch of judges. And I think what has to happen, too, is you have to take the elitism out of herb and allow regular people just an opportunity to be around the elite and to get a chance to smoke shit that they didn't get to smoke. It's kind of like when we pass out genes, you know? Yeah. It, you, you're getting access to shit you couldn't get, and yeah. you're not having to fucking do any weird shit to do it. You're, you're able to be, like, valid just because you're part of the community. Yeah. And I think that yeah, that's how we get cannabis embracement back. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think having those, those events and, like, yeah, it's not all about the competition, but a competition maybe is a part of the overall event, but... Yeah, I think building those communities and providing access, like, like, and documenting it, I think that's something that we oh, yeah. really, I've been struggling so bad with where it's like, yo, there was this amazing party. It was amazing. And it's like, do you have any, like, 
video? And it's like, no, no video. Any photos? No, no, no photos. And you're like, well, how can we like promote it and inspire other people that want to do stuff like that if we have no documentation of it? So I think as a community, we need to get better at documenting things the same way other communities document things. Well, we got fucked. I mean, people ask me all the time for photos. You got photos in the past? And I say, why the fuck would I do that? I said, you know, I mean, I, like any fucking information, I said, all you need to do is have anything that involves brains. And what you got is an enhancement for a mastermind fucking, which throws two more years of prison on your fucking shit. 100%. I said, I'm talking about now. Enough mastermind fucking charges to know that uh, any, any evidence is a fucking problem. Yeah. And so our issue is that, you know, we, we all lived in this world of silence, but you want to be able to, to document it so that what you're able to do is let, let ordinary people see that it's regular people enjoying product yeah. and things they do may be irregular, but they're pretty regular. Like, you know, when I, like I said, the melting of the heads, I'm watching Scott Debbie chilling, hanging out and he's smiling and laughing and stuff. And that motherfucker's is a glass God. Yeah. And yeah. like in real life, that's a fucking glass god. Yeah. Yeah. And and he just chilling and having a good time. And I was like, that was so healthy to see because it, it lets it lets people really understand the community that formed cannabis and, and how the positivity of it brought forth all this great shit. Yeah. Scott was very like it, it was he was very approachable. He was very like present. It was it was unreal. It was so cool that he opened up that space to us. And and I mean that space added to a lot of how why the event was so successful and so special. But I think that like doing more of that with glass artists and you know especially like the the resin community, the hash community that consumes primarily out of glass. Like I think that that th those those celebrations and, and cultural events need to be together. They do. You know who did a really nice job with, with merging art and his brand was Wonder Brett. So, you know, Wonder Brett, Wonder Brett's one of the original OG guys, right? Yeah. And so I go down and meet Brett a number of years ago down in uh, L.A. And he was just a fucking really good dude. But he's a, he's a talented artist and he's got uh, friends that are talented artists. And so, like, his whole facility was nothing but street art. You know, the fucking whole walls are sprayed in street art stuff in it. It's the, the the dripping of the colors on his boxes and shit. It's it's art merged in with cannabis and and it's allowing people to be able to see the stuff. It's kind of like getting all the graphic artists that do all our labels and all our branding and shit. It'd be like having all the artists that work in cannabis at the event with the consumption, with the hash, with the growers. And so what you do is you're you're letting people come in and find someone that they can connect to. It's. I think most people nowadays are like IT pros, right? So everybody that hits me up for a job in cannabis wants to leave IT. But the thing I mean, is, he also names his phenos, right? Like the the pink princess and yes, uh, yeah, yeah, the pink the, Picasso. He, yeah, and he doesn't release a ton of shit. He you know, he selected yeah. something special and he fucking ran it. But he just brings a beautiful level of art to his work. And if you meet Brett, Brett's hella cool, right? He's 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 a fucking real as it gets, and. I just like the way that he merged that street art culture. Cause I'm not, I'm not an artist. So, you know, I'm not a street art culture and, but I'm street culture. And so for me, anytime you bring those worlds together, man, you create a genuine that's just hard to replace. And as long as everybody in the room is there to like be part of the event, then what you have is an incredible event so that nobody's, 
nobody's above anybody else. Yeah. You're, you're, you're there together to just celebrate. And I think that, that, you know, for the average individual, the chance to get to be around people they see and, and, and want to emulate and then get to enjoy their company in a way that's just normal is yeah. so healthy, you know? I think and, it's, it's humbling too, when you bring together like the glass community and the, the cannabis community, cause there are some, like if you just separate them, there are individuals who are really well known and respected in each of those communities. But when you bring together the communities and then one of those well-respected individuals meets someone from the opposite community and they have no idea who they are, it kind of grounds everybody and like remembers everybody's kind of on a similar level. And I think it puts out like kind of a very cool, um, uh, it just puts out a really, a really cool environment. Oh, completely. It's healthy for everyone involved. Yeah. And people need it because what you have is we have this fucking cult of hero worship and it's, it's just not healthy. And, and what you want to be able to do is like, you know, respect the work, but the individuals are just people too. And to be able to get them all in the same room and to share the information. And, and I just think that society has been beat down so fucking hard on rank where, you know, you're, you're just not special unless you're fucking special. So, you know, you have no value anymore. And the truth of it is everybody has fucking value. And hopefully you have a lot of it, the people around you. And to get those people in events together at the same time is just a really, really solid way to illustrate it. I'm going to run out of phone in about probably a couple minutes. Kev, it was, it was always so good to rock with you, man, and, and appreciate the time. If there, is there any, uh, like any other projects, any other stuff that you want to shout out? as kind of a, a last chance. I know we've covered a ton, but yeah, I guess the unicorn cups coming up next week up in the Kootenays and I'm hella we'll excited. See you there. Uh, yep. You're going to be there and um, I'm hella excited and I'm just grateful that I got invited to be part of it. So uh, thanks so much for the time. It was good to chop it up with your brother too. Absolutely. Kev. Thank you so much. Don't forget to like and subscribe everybody. Cheers. Have a great day. Right on.